this is called lucid dreaming. You see, once I'm asleep, these goggles monitor my eye movements. Then I hit my REM cycle and the lights begin to flash, let me know that I'm dreaming. That way my mind wakes up, even though I'm somatically, metabolically dead to the world. You get to be haunter of your dream world, decide where you go, what you do. It's the only way of working out your problems. You know, like if you got an issue with a woman. Hmm. Well, good luck. All right, well, this one sounds like a really obvious one to ask right at the beginning of the podcast. Lee, are you a big fan of lucid dreaming? Big fan meaning, am I a practitioner of lucid dreaming? Yes. Are you a disciple of the, <laughs> I wouldn't really call it an art form, I guess, the practice. The method. Yeah, the practice. Yes. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how to lucid dream. Um, I remember going through a phase where I would keep track of my dreams. I think if you try to remember your dreams in the morning, especially if you write them down, it'll help you dream more often, you know, like recognizing that you are dreaming after the fact, I guess, opens the mind's eye, you know, while you're sleeping to notice that you are in a dream. And it's easier to recall dreams later if you keep a practice of writing them down. And I guess the theory there as well is uh, in lucid dreaming, you have to, you have to like figure out what the signs are that you are dreaming. And if you can cognitively recognize that you are in a dream while you're dreaming, then theoretically you could take control of it. And I have, I have been in moments in dreams where that has happened. So I guess I have lucid dreamed before and they always end really quickly too. Like it doesn't last very long. There's, I guess it's sort of like an inception. Do you know, have you seen inception? Yeah. 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 Where like the dream is crumbling. I feel like that's, mm -hmm. that's what happens is once you recognize it's, or once I recognize that it's a dream, it ends pretty swiftly, but I can recall I feel like once or twice, at least once, um, I, I was flying in a dream. And that was really cool. Oh, I, I, I'm not big on heights. Yeah, me neither. But, me neither. Yeah, but in my, I've had this dream a couple times uh, of different variations, but they always consist of one common thing, which is me launching myself off of like <laughs> the stairs, a cliff, whatever. For like some unknown reason, like I'll just jump off of it and I'll go through this sensation of it. But before I hit the floor, I wake up and I, I won't even categorize those as nightmares because it wasn't like it just it, that was like the one thing that just happens there. The rest of the dream is OK. It's just like it ends with me just jumping. Yeah, that happens to me. Um, that kind of sensation, like the sensation of falling. Well, let me ask you this. When you are falling in that dream, is it kind of thrilling, like kind of scary, like not good? It's not good. Yeah, yeah. Not good. 100% well, not good. <laughs> so that actually happens to me often um, when I'm just about to fall asleep. You know, like that, oh. you know, like I, it's like I'm trying to go to bed at night and then I quickly wake up and I realize, oh, I was like, you know, I was only asleep for like three seconds or something. So it's like mm. some, it's like in that brief state of like just about to fall into sleep, not really awake, not fully asleep yet. And I jolt awake as if I'm like falling, you know, falling into my bed. I've had that. Falling. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that too. I, okay. So I know that like, there's nothing more boring than hearing about other people's right. dreams. So I'm just going to gloss over this one like very, very quickly. But one of the dreams that I've, I've always remembered, and I don't know why, but like it stuck with me ever since I was a child, like seven years old. Is that like, uh, I was at like, like the footsteps of a stairs outside and Inspector Gadget came <laughs> and met with me. 
and like a bunch of other children. And then we went to a factory. That's all I remember from it. But it's remained in my mind that Inspector Gadget paid me a visit. Nice. I don't know why it stayed with me. I've lost count of so many other dreams, but that one yeah. has remained in my mind. Do you have do you have like a one dream that has been with you since you were a child? Um, no, not nothing interesting enough to get into here. But yeah, I mean, that goes into the idea of like if you think about like if you relive a dream or if you like writing it down is a act of sort of remembering and reliving it. I think that helps you remember it better. So, because so often, like, you know, it's not like we don't dream. I guess some people say they don't dream, but it feels like for the most part, for me, at least when I wake up, it's like I had a dream, but then it's quickly forgotten. You know, that's, I think that's Mm -hmm. the um, experience for many people. So yeah, I mean, maybe we should try cataloging your dreams again. I don't know. Charles, have you ever lucid dreamed? No, I've never, never lucid never dreamed. been in that situation where you're like, okay, I am dreaming now. I don't think so. And I don't, okay. So like, I, I think we've had this conversation before, yeah. like 10 years ago or something like that, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, where you were asking me, you were like, Hey, do you like having dreams? And I told you, and my answer is still the same in that, no, I don't like having dreams, even if they're good dreams, because then you wake up from yeah. that. Like I was having a perfectly wonderful time and then you wake up and you're like, oh, okay, it wasn't real. Like I'd be more relieved if it was a nightmare because then I know it's not real. But on a dream, it's like, it's your ideal place. And then you wake up from it and it's torn from you. So I've never liked it. There is an aspect that Chris is talking about in this episode of the idea that um, dreams can help you work through some subconscious problems. And I think that can be true, at least in my experience, but most often it's in reflecting on the dream because dreams to me seem like kind of random, but in reflecting on them, maybe there is some sort of subconscious code or or at least um, thinking about what you're dreaming about maybe gives you some insight into like, okay, what's what's all the little detritus that's floating around in my head and how can I sort that out? Yeah, that just reminded me. There was like a post I saw like a few months ago and I want to say it was on the subreddit of grad school okay. and the topic of it was, uh, how do you cite a dream slash hallucination in APA seventh format? <laughs> and the top comment goes, what? <laughs> and then the, the original poster goes, I want to include something that was revealed to me in a vision <laughs> in one of my research papers, but I do not know how to cite it. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Well, we could talk about dreams all day. Let's uh, let's get into the topic at hand. We are the Northern Overexposure podcast. We cover the series Northern Exposure. Uh, we're in season six now. Three episodes left, counting this one. And um, I guess we should say, Charles, this is our, you know, we, we're returning from hiatus over the sort of holiday break, uh, winter break, returning. And um, just very recently, I guess it was... January 4th, I want to say, Northern Exposure for the first time became available for streaming on um, Amazon Prime. I think it's only in the U.S. right now. Can't attest to other territories, but uh, viewers in the U.S. can watch Northern Exposure with a Prime subscription. You don't have to rent or buy it. Uh, this is this is groundbreaking. What music is being shown on it? Is it music or is it actual Bonafide original music. Sounds like from uh, people who are watching it that it is mostly the original stuff. I think there's always still a few things that that just aren't licensed. One of them, surprisingly, in a lot of these like Blu-rays 
And in this, uh, apparently in this streaming, uh, Amazon Prime streaming, it's uh, in the episode Russian Flu in the beginning when Joel is like getting ready, uh, brushing his teeth, showering. The song is supposed to be um, Who Put the Bomp? Forget who sings it. <laughs> uh, but it's like Who Put the Bomp? And that is always replaced with Muzak. Um, surprisingly though, I think it's, uh, on the DVD, it is the original song where that's the one, mm. you know, mostly, I think it's after season one in the DVDs, most of the music is replaced or a lot of the music is replaced. So apparently this is supposed to be a lot of original music, like over 50% original music. Maybe it's all original music with just a few things replaced. I don't, you know, we'd have to watch it to, to really know. Yeah. And it's also 1080, you know, 1080 HD. Hmm. How I, I like I'm so lost in the mechanics of the um, of the logic of this. How does this come about? Because for decades, Northern Exposure couldn't be on a streaming service because of the music. Mm-hmm. Famously, everyone knows this. But now it seems like it's appeared on a streaming service and most of the music is intact. Is it a case of like some executive like shopping it around and being like, Okay, I'll sell it to you at a discounted price. Like, how does this even work? I have no idea. Yeah, I really don't know either. I guess we could speculate on a few things. And one of those could be, uh, one option could be what you just said. If someone is like, you know, what, who would pay the most for this? Um, there is the the sort of limiting factor of uh, relicensing a lot of those songs is expensive. So that's what has like kept it from, you know, being released uh, streaming and, um you know, why the DVDs were, when they were released, a lot of the music was replaced because the cost of relicensing those songs uh, for home video was, you know, I don't know if it was too expensive, but it was expensive enough um, knowing that Northern Exposure was a show that is no longer generating any money. I think, um, I mean, there's a lot that we can get into here, but there's like some lawsuits that happened uh, towards the end of the run of the show that effectively resulted in Northern Exposure, like, you know, it cost more money than it was making because of these lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And so now I had heard on, I think it was like Rob Morrow had tweeted this and I'll always remember this. He was saying like, we, someone responding, he was responding to someone who was asking why Northern Exposure is not on any streaming service. And Rob was saying like, I'm surprised that it's not either, you know, it's not that it wouldn't be that crazy for these uh, companies that own the show to pony up just a little bit of money. Like it wouldn't be that expensive, I think is what he was letting mm-hmm. on. Again, I don't want to, I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing and it could be misremembering, but I wanted to say like people involved with the show were hoping that it would come to streaming and realize that it probably wouldn't be that hard for these companies and executives to make it happen. You know, it wouldn't be that much money. And maybe that's what is happening today. The The other thing that I think is really Helping here is, I guess Amazon Prime is just like a huge company. I know that the the cost for a Prime subscription has gone up over the years. And also I think they're going to start including um, like commercials, like advertisements within the streaming unless you pay for a higher tier. So that will generate a lot of money. People watching Northern Exposure are going to be watching commercials, I think, I want to say. Again, uh, Check me on this, but that's my guess is how they could afford this potentially. Mm. Yeah, I'm really curious about it. Uh, the optimist in me says that it's a test balloon. You know, maybe a revival's on the horizon. Yeah, that maybe they're too. like, hey, 
we got to bring this back. Get some people remembering right there. Definitely. Uh, yeah, that this is this. Yeah. You're making a good point. This this could um, be sort of like foreshadowing a uh, a reboot or a revival or something. That would be great. All right. Well, let's talk about today's episode, which is, or is it? Or some major or or some minor? Minor. Minor. All right. Well, who are the writers and directors? So Ursa Minor, the name of the episode, uh, it's the 21st episode in season six. The director was Patrick McKee. He directed one other episode in the series back in season five, The Gift of the Maggie, uh, and this episode. Those are the only episodes he directed for Northern Exposure. The writer was Sam Egan, who I want to say entered the show maybe in season five no, just in season six. And he's got a few credits in season six. Um, the Robe earlier in the season, Real Politic, The Graduate, this episode. And then he also writes next episode. And finally, the air date was July 12th, 1995, which was, of course, a Wednesday. All right. Getting into the summer right there. And I never really thought about that that much uh, whenever we talk about air dates. Yeah. But yeah, generally shows, you know, like those prime hitters, they run from... Uh, like a school year, they run from fall to spring. But this one was running into the summer. I don't want to read too much into it, though, because, you know, the schedule is all messed up. So God knows where it airs. Yeah, the schedule this season was really messed up. Again, it went from Monday to Wednesday time slot. And I felt like there's a couple, like more than a few breaks within the season. And not just like your typical sort of Christmas break. You know, there are some weird mm-hmm. breaks uh, during the during the run of the season. Well, let's talk about the episode and our general thoughts about it. Uh, I will say that I am not a big fan of this episode. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I'll agree. Not not the greatest episode in season six. Uh, we've been watching this season for a while, so I can't say that this would be the worst episode, but it might be a contender. Not that anything in it was like, it's probably not the worst episode because if it were, it would be an episode that's something that like I really have a problem with. This was just kind of a mediocre episode for me. Like we got um, Ed is fostering a baby bear cub and the bear cub is really cute. Like you could, mm-hmm. there's really not a lot going on in that plot line and it really doesn't need a whole lot because you could just look at this bear cub and smile. You know, it's like there's not a whole lot going on there, but it's cute as heck. There's the uh, plot with Maurice. He's worried about the dwindling population of Sicily. Um, There's also Chris and the lucid dreaming, of course, that we uh, talked about in our opening soundbite. There's also some stuff with um, Phil and Michelle uh, sort of mending their, you know, their relationship here. But none of these are, you know, they don't interest me too much. I think the lucid dreaming sounds like it would be a great um, exploration for Northern Exposure, but uh, it's kind of becomes more of just like a sexual fantasy, cheating on Maggie subplot. It doesn't get too fantastical. Um, yeah, I mean, it's to me just a mediocre ep, but how, how deep is your hatred for this episode, Charles? I wouldn't say that I hate the episode, but it's just, I, okay, so like, let me say that, like, we are on the third to last episode, and I'm not too sure what the word for that is, because I know the second to last one is penultimate. Right. Uh, I don't know if the third one is pen, <laughs> penultimate. I don't yeah. know what the uh, <laughs> modifier is for that. But I feel like we really should be wrapping up toward the end game. We should be focusing on plot yeah. lines that are going to define where the character 
is going to end. And if you're telling me that Ed's journey ends with him <laughs> with this, then that's uh, that's not great. I want to know something about his filmmaking career. I want to know something about his shaman career. I want to know something yeah. about him maybe even leaving Sicily to be like, I want to explore my options and see the world. I want to see something right. that is defining the characters. Right. And there's something... There's something maybe happening with Phil and Michelle. They're like, okay, we can't have them just like be split up in the finale, maybe. Maybe they're trying to figure out how to bring them back together. But then with Chris and Maggie, of course, we get the sense that they're trying, the show is trying to ship them together. But the way that this episode starts, if you remember coming off of um, Bus Stop, which, you know, kind of has an open ending in itself, but... Starting this episode, it just seems like Chris is still very noncommittal. So it's like not, yeah, nothing has really changed. Even though Bus Stop ends with an open ending, it's like, well, you know, nothing has changed. Chris is still uh, a little antsy about this to get into this relationship. Right. And I don't, I feel like we're just revisiting this over and over and over again because even before Bus Stop, that was the bowling episode yeah. mm -hmm. in which you could argue and be like, well, that's their beginning. Yeah. And that also felt like they got further ahead and then bus stop like felt like a step back. And then this, you know, this feels like a step back from the, um, from balls, the, the bowling episode, mm -hmm. just like tracking the progression of their relationship. Right. So that's where I'm kind of taking umbrage with this is like, I want to see them explore the relationship in an actual relationship, not a should we even be dating type of thing. I want you to get past that hurdle. Yeah. And then talk about the meat. Like right now you're at the surface. I want you to get a little bit underground. I, I want to explore how they are as a couple, how they are on handling challenges as a couple, yada, yada, yada. I want to see that stuff. I, I just feel like we just keep seeing this plot line over and over and over again, just in different coats of paint. Uh, and that's what, kind of bothered me about this episode uh, along with ed's plot line and arguably even phil and michelle's plot line which i know it resolves but i'm not even that big of a fan of how it resolves yeah yeah well i did want to jump in there real fast and say maybe the reason why it feels like we're stalling out with um chris and maggie is because they are looking at the final episode of the season to be like, and this is the episode where they kiss and they're dating or like Chris says, will you marry me? Or so, you know, something crazy like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe they are. That's, that's a good point right there. Uh, well, why don't we dive into it? Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I'll look at yeah. this in a more charitable view, but, uh, let's start with the cold open with Ed, who is having a great time. You know, he's just seeing nature. He's seeing what he's got to offer. Is that like a little Twinkie nestled in his, uh, is that a bandana? Yeah. He like unwraps his bandana, a Twinkie in there. Yeah. He's just, what is, what is he doing? Is he just like, I'm going to have a chill day by the, by the river and yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's one of those, <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's a chillax day, some R and R what the doctor prescribed. It looks great. I feel like you could just nestle out there with a book or something. <laughs> like I was, I thought this was going to be awesome. And then. Now he gets introduced to uh, his main conflict of the episode, the bear cub. One of the biggest missteps of this episode is they never name the bear cub. They just call him bear. Why, uh, why couldn't they have given it a cute name? I think it's because he doesn't want to get attached to it. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, obviously this is kind of a frightening situation to find yourself in, finding a baby bear cub. 
uh, crawling around alone must mean that the mother is somewhere nearby. And if the cub is crying, then it's like alerting its mom to its position. So Ed is rightfully a little um, freaked out, a little scared, and wants to uh, exit the situation. He's trying to uh, quiet down the animal and say like, oh, you know, um, your mom will be back soon. Just wait here. But the the bear will not stop following him. Have you ever uh, been in a bear situation? Ever been out camping uh, and fear for your life? <laughs> no, I have never seen a bear. Um, well, other than like a zoo or something. But no, like I've never like went camping and saw a bear at all. Have you? No, I have never seen a bear. Uh, been in situations where it's like maybe we should have some bear spray, but I don't think I've ever had bear spray on me. Um, but yeah, not, nothing like, I don't think I've ever been, been in bear territory. You know, that's not really, uh, I don't know. That, yeah. We, we, I, I don't go camping very often, but I do recall there's a funny anecdote. Um, Charles, I don't remember if you were with us, but we were camping in, you know, in Texas and one of our friends or one of the people on the camping trip had a dog that was named bear. And I remember we were like packing up, trying to leave and the owner was like either looking for their dog or calling for it to come back. And they were just like screaming, bear, bear, like in the middle of the woods. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think you should scream that out loud <laughs> here. Like there's other people that camping so nearby, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. So I was just looking this up really quickly because I knew that there was a difference between them. So there is a difference between a black bear and a brown bear attack. I'm getting this from the National Park Service website, so if I'm wrong, blame them. But apparently, if you find a black bear and he charges and attacks you, you got to fight back with everything you have. Do not play mm. dead. Yeah. So that's the big one. But if a grizzly slash brown bear charges and attacks you, you play dead. Do not fight back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, they said that, like, when you fight back against a grizzly slash brown bear it will worsen the attack. So that's why they're like, yeah. all right, you want to play dead? Yeah, I guess the idea being like, if it thinks you're dead, if it doesn't think you're dead, it'll keep thrashing you till you die. Um, that's the brown bear. But with the black bear, maybe there's some chance that you could scare it off. Yeah, I think that's idea. what they're thinking. Yeah, they're like, black bear, you might be able to intimidate him because otherwise he ain't, yeah. you know, he, he's not He's not buying what you're selling. Grizzlies, yeah, grizzlies can't be, like there's nothing out there that scares them, I guess, or very, very little. Um, yeah, no, I <laughs> I do remember in Dungeons and Dragons, like the stat block for black bear versus brown bear, like the brown bear is a higher challenge rating. Like it's more. Wait, which more one deadly. is a higher challenge rating? The, the brown bear. The brown. Rightfully so. I think <laughs> the it's like grizzly the, the grizzly. Yeah, it's the big thing. Yeah. Do you know that like a polar bear is like significantly larger than both of those bears? Yeah, I do remember hearing that those like polar bears are really nasty. Yeah. Like you absolutely won't win against that. I think it's so fascinating because I never thought about that. I thought they were like equal weights. But hey, the little baby bear here is very cute. I think it's, a, I mean, it must be Ann Gordon on the scene, uh, Animal Wrangler. Uh, it's just a perfect little, you know, animal feature for this show. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hang on. I'm sorry. I'm going to yeah. return back to this one last time because it popped up and I was like, I got to know more about this. So a grizzly bear weighs about 400 to 600 pounds, uh, an adult male. A polar bear weighs 2,200 pounds. Wow. Well, the biggest one. Yeah. But like, you know, still. 
That is significantly more larger. Oh, my Lord. Yes. Anyway, okay, I'm sorry. I'll get off that polar bear tangent. So, yeah, we're looking at an adorable cub right here, and Gordon's got to be on the set managing it. And I want to skip to the end about this, actually, because I was really curious. Uh, the story ends with, you know, the cub reuniting with the mother, but I'm pretty sure they're not in the same frame, right? Like, they're, yeah, that, I, that's just a reaction shot. I wasn't paying too much attention, but I had that thought in my mind is like, oh, yeah, they're not, they're never going to put the two animals in the same frame together. Right. I don't think so. I, I thought that was going to happen right here. I thought when I saw this scene, I was like, is this just like footage of a bear and Ed's going to see it and we're going to get like, you know, back and forth shots, but they're not actually in the same room. But no, then like Ed totally enters into the frame and like picks up the bear. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, the next time we see him, he brings the baby bear to Dr. Capra's office, uh, asking for a sedative of some sort, like some sort of medicine to help the little baby bear cub sleep or calm down because Ed is clearly pretty tortured here. He's having to care for this bear cub and he's been up all night because the bear is rummaging about anytime Ed is just about to go to sleep. You know, the cub is making some sort of noise and wants, you know, it's mother's care. And so Dr. Capra is like, well, I'm not a veterinarian, you know, maybe you should try feeding it, you know, maybe try pretending that it's, um, that you're its mother, you know, if you can, uh, use, I think he calls it surrogate parenthood. Try to dress yourself in furs. I don't know if Capra gives him that advice, but we do see Ed throughout the rest of the episode. He's like wearing bear furs and things like that to try to trick the cub into thinking that he's its mom. Uh, there's like warm milk. Phil Capra says, give it some warm milk. He can try starting with that. And um, I forgot to double check the, like the show Bible here, but I, I have no reason to believe that it would be false, but Ed says that he's uh, part of the bear clan. So he has this obligation to look out for the cub. It's like he's family with the cub. He's part of the bear clan. He can't just leave a baby cub out um, without any protection. Yeah. So that's going to be one of the big reasons why he has to stick with this bear. I think that there is a very obvious parallel happening here between Ed's plotline and Chris's plotline, where it's two individuals trying to wrangle with nature and inner nature of who you are it's very like Freudian-esque, I guess you could say. But yeah, I think the big keyword here is surrogate parenthood. So Ed is literally trying to tame nature right here. Uh, and if you looked at it another way, you could also be like, oh, he's also trying to learn the responsibilities of parenthood and how to nurture yeah, I got that second one a lot uh, because towards the end of this storyline, it's like Ed talking with, um, actually, I think one of these is a deleted scene, but he talks to Shelly in the episode and there's a scene with where he talks with Hauling. I think that's a deleted scene just about parenthood and the difficulties um, that, you know, I think maybe the, I feel like to me, this plot line was trying to say something about parenthood, which I guess let's continue down the plot line and see um what this episode is saying. So next scene, I think uh, Ed is sleeping in some bear furs, trying to convince the cub that he's its mother. And the cub is making some noise, crawling around, trying to wake up Ed. Uh, and so Ed, you know, gets up, time to feed. Uh, he, he prepares a bottle of milk, super cute little uh, bear cub. Um, but the cub, I think poops on him or something like it's not, mm -hmm. we don't see anything, but he's like feeding the bear cub in his lap 
And he's like, oh, why'd you have to do that? Yeah, he freaks out over it. Uh, it's actually in the subtitles. It says defecating. <laughs> so like 100% <laughs> that, bear, that bear pooped on Ed. And so the next scene is Ed waking up in the morning and trying to get rid of the bear. He meets Eugene outside of the brick and he says like, hey, you know, I got this sweet offer for you. Responsibility. Not even of a dog, like a freaking bear. <laughs> like, that's not even legal to own. Yeah. Like, you can't, can't own a bear. I like Eugene's response here when he sees Ed in the bear. He says, dude, nice bear. And uh, <laughs> Eugene has a has a good excuse here. He says, I'm, I'm Salmon Clan. You know, salmon and bear, they're natural enemies. It goes way back. So I can't look after your bear. Um, plus, um, I think Eugene's wife would get mad at him, something like that. He's got enough responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't work out. Oh, he said his, um, his wife said that, uh, no pets allowed anyway, but Ed is just asking, like, please, could you at least like babysit it for me? <laughs> like <laughs> I've got a, uh, a date night coming up with, uh, someone named Bonnie Norell. He says, um, it's his first date since he and Heather broke up which would have been uh, recently and that that's the last episode with uh, Heather Haynes balls. That was the bowling episode. Balls, yeah, I want to say that. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to come in and say like that that line actually got me thinking when Eugene says like, oh, I'm part of the Salmon Clan and you're a bear clan. We're natural enemies. Seems kind of one-sided. I feel like the bear wins 100% of the time. (laughs) Wait, what do you mean? He's saying like, oh, we're natural enemies. It's like, yeah, the salmon to the bear, but for the bear to the salmon, you're just food. Oh, I see. Like you're not, (laughs) he's not posing a challenge. Yeah. (laughs) Enemies in the sense that they challenge each other. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. uh, Ed's attempt to try to pawn this bear off is unsuccessful right there. Uh, Is the next scene when Ed brings the bear to like the indoor playground? Yes, that is the next scene with that. Ed goes to the next measure of how to take care of this bear, which is hitting up that, uh, I don't know what the right word for it is. Is it like a daycare center? It's like a playground. I think it's, I think they call it the indoor playground or they mentioned the playground in uh, another episode, like the one where Shelly and Holling are looking for a house. Um, and they mention like living in the city would be nice because there's a playground, right? You know, down the street. Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah, Ed is bringing this bear to the playground. Probably not a good idea, though I guess the bear is harmless, potentially. It just makes a lot of mess. I don't think it could necessarily, I don't know, maybe it could harm, I think it could potentially hard, harm children. You know? <laughs> Might not be the smartest thing to bring the bear there. Uh, but he goes to Shelly for some advice here, or just to to talk it out, and this is the scene where I realized that the bear does not have a name. Ed is just calling it bear, which I guess you're right. As you're saying, it's like he doesn't want to grow too attached. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know. You could come up with a cute name. Um, Ed is mostly blowing off steam here. He's um, telling Shelly that it's been very rough. He's, he says, like, I came this close to spanking him. And uh, Shelly, you know just admits to to Ed that this is normal. You know, everyone thinks that parenting is some beautiful relationship between child and parent, you know, baby and mother. But, you know, moms are often uh, pushed to their limits and they have to keep their cool. They have, they have to try, they have to employ very many techniques to keep themselves from 
you know, killing their kid, you know, they're so angry, want to, want to, you know, smack their child. Um, she says, you learn techniques to help you chill. Timeouts, counting to 10, talking it out really helps, which I think is great parenting advice, though I guess, uh, I don't know if it's, you could really do that with a bear. You know, obviously you can't really talk it out with the bear, though there is some potentially maybe some animal empathy that could be uh, communicated. I don't know. Yeah, I think ultimately what he's what he's trying to get at is like, oh, I just need like, I just need a little time to myself so that I can, you know, regather my energy, I, I think is what they're just trying to say right here. Uh, I wanted to note that there is a stuffed bear on the yeah. table. <laughs> that was kind of cute. Yeah, that first scene with... um. With Ed and his furs, I thought the bear was like crawling onto a stuffed bear as well. But I like that. Oh. I, I do like that seeing the stuffed bear here in this scene and seeing like the furs and the bear together in the same frame is interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, now we fast forward to Ed back at his home, picking up a call from Bonnie, who evidently is not big on the bear. She was hoping that Ed could find a sitter for it, but... Ed could not, so she wants to cancel out on their date together. He says, uh, the smell's not so bad now, Bonnie. I got some air freshener. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bonnie really is not interested in going out with a person who is uh, fostering a bear. Surely, it just, this just occurred to me, like, surely you would just contact some sort of park service, right? To be like, hey, I found a bear. Yeah. Could you come and take care? You know, like. Right. I don't know if there is any. I would imagine because Sicily is so remote that there may be no park service, you know? Mm. There may be no. Um, that is true. Because it doesn't even seem like there's like a, um, what do you call those? Um, they're sort of like, I don't even know if you call them officers of the law, but they're like game wardens or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, even, I don't even think Sicily has that. Like there's just, Barbara Szymanski is the only sort of authority of the law in the um, in the area. And she's not even from Sicily. Like she has to commute, you know? Oh man, talk about, have you heard about the new season of True Detective? Oh yeah. It's literally, in, it's about cops in Alaska. We gotta watch like that. Like a rural part. <laughs> yeah, it's a rural part of Alaska and they're trying to piece together what went wrong in this research group. I was just thinking of like a darker version of Northern Exposure. Barbara like, Samantha's They only got there. Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like she's the only law person. Like the individual that could uphold the law. Uh, God, so many things could go wrong. Thank God they're a loving community. Well, I didn't mention the last scene. It ended with, um, it's like a very cute shot of the bear getting tangled up in some yarn, you know, getting into some mischief, but it's so cute. The the ending of this scene that we're in here, when uh, Ed is on the phone with Bonnie, the bear knocks over a bowl of popcorn. You know, I guess the bowl that Ed was preparing for, for the movie night. Uh, not only does it spill the popcorn, it shatters the bowl. And this makes Ed like snap immediately. He says like, that's it. You see this coat that I'm wearing? It's just a coat. I'm not your mother. I'm not even your friend. Like he's yelling at the bear. And um, this is, I guess, the dark night of the soul. You know, he's breaking up with the bear in a sense. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We next cut to them in the next morning or presumably the next morning where he's pushing the bear along in a carriage. So that was really cute. Uh, it's a full on carriage. Like, it's not like a basket. Right. <laughs> like, it's, I don't know where Ed has this, but he has <laughs> obtained this, uh, this thing for the bear now. And he leaves it outside Ruthann's store because he wants to head inside and buy some bear spray or <laughs> just things to keep bears off of furniture. Right, right. And then he heads back outside 
or uh, I think they hear like a car crash or something, right? I don't remember what cues them outside. Oh, no, 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 no. He just walks outside. I'm sorry. I got yeah. confused. No, he just walks outside and he finds a dog has tipped over the uh, the, the carriage. Mm-hmm. He's drinking the milk and everything. And Ed freaks out because now the bear is gone. Yeah. And as soon as Ed realizes that the um, there's no sight of the bear, all of a sudden like traffic becomes more obvious to Ed. Like we get the sounds of the traffic and we get close up of uh, like cars whooshing by. And so Ed is um, now very much aware of the danger of like a little baby bear crawling out into the road. Um, he's looking for the bear. He sees Walt walking by and he asks if he saw a bear. Uh, no luck there. Ed, Ed runs around um, a corner, a street corner. Actually, it's like an angle that we don't often see. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's like we can see the brick. So it's like the brick is like a block away, but we're on a side street a little further away from the entrance of the brick. And there's a sign there that says uh, Central Sundries, last chance to stop food, drink, remedies. I don't think I think this I don't think we've seen this sign before. Maybe we have, but we don't see this angle very often. But anyway, the bear is out here and it's mulling through trash on the side of the road out here. And Ed is just immediately relieved um, to find the bear. And he says, don't you ever do that to me again. And it's not really like a scornful way of saying it, but more of like, you know, you scared me to death. I was worried about you. You know, I love you. Yeah. This is where his opinion of the bear turns around. He's now looking at it through new eyes because this is where he brings him out to teach him all about bear things. And I'm going to combine these two scenes together because they kind of flow uh, pretty well with each other, okay. but it's when Ed takes him out to the river and he tries to teach him how to catch salmon. Yeah, he's dressed up in his uh, bear outfit once again. He's just trying to teach the ropes to the little bear, trying to show him the ways, and he's also showing him the berries. He's trying to demonstrate which berries are good, which berries are bad. Yeah, the the cranberries and the bane berries, like knowing which ones are good to eat, which ones you stay away from. He shows the bear a really good stream for fishing. And I think that's when Q Mama Bear is, you know, she's mulling about in the distance. Makes sense because we're going to a a fishing stream. So the Mama Bear might be looking for some food, maybe looking for her, probably still looking for her her lost cub. So instantly Ed, you know, puts the bear cub down. And um, actually, it's it's been a minute since I watched this episode. Charles, do you remember how this plays out here? Uh, he pretty much just puts the bear down and the... Doesn't he say like, go on, go on, like go see your mom, something like that? Yeah, the baby bear does indeed go see the mom. And I just now realized, I think they're all in the same frame. Okay, nice. So how do they do that though? They might have just, you know, probably just enough distance. Yeah, but like, is that big bear trained? Oh, definitely. Yeah, they wouldn't have a wild bear. Uh, yeah, you know. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but is he trained enough to like be that calm? Yeah, I, I guess, guess so. so. It yeah. must be. I'm going to yeah. check the shout out too because I wanted to see. Yeah, it's an over-the-shoulder shot where you can see Ed's shoulder and you can see the baby bear ah, and it's yeah. approaching toward the mama bear. And yeah, Ed makes a last remark saying like, hey, he likes popcorn, by the way. If you guys want to go rummage through the trash for him. He likes popcorn. Yeah, that's pretty cute. <laughs> I think that if this plot line was extended, like if we had more time, I, I think the natural way it would have played out is that Ed would have actually hid the baby bear. Because he's starting to warm up to it and he doesn't want to give it up. So he's going to, you know, hide it from the mama bear, actually. He's going to go back home with it. And then, you know, once he realizes like, oh, it's, 
you know, it belongs with its real mother, belongs out there in nature. I can't control it. Then he goes back and returns to Bear in a very tearful way. Maybe even like Harry and the Hendersons is out, you know, he's got to yell at her or something. Yeah. Uh, I kind of thought that's where it was going, but I realized like, oh, they don't have enough time. Yeah. There's not enough time allocated in the episode for them to do this plot line. That's true. I mean, even if you, like you would have to kind of pull some things from other plot lines out, I think, because you could say that there's a couple scenes of Ed, like there's two scenes of Ed show teaching the bear, but they're very short, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think what you're saying is very interesting. I think it would make a great episode. Um, or a great plot line for an episode, but it does require a little more time to really get those feelings um, expressed, you know? To get those story beats, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I really can't complain too much with this plot line because the bear is just so gosh darn cute. Um, but that's it, right? Yeah, he just says he really likes popcorn, and, I, and that's the end of the, uh, yeah. the bear. <laughs> okay, like, I know that the bear is adorable, but, like, they don't have to sit down and tell it to me like in a voiceover and hold my hand. I get that. They want me to practice my media literacy skills, try to find out what this whole thing was about. But I kind of feel it was wasted on Ed because it wasn't like he was somebody that was wavering on parenthood. I don't think he like really comes out of this with something stronger other than an experience, like some crazy bar story you can tell. No, yeah, I didn't see this as a plot line that was really about Ed's character too much. I think for me, it was just like, here's a plot line that has something to say about mothers, you know, mothers and uh, their children and like the, or sorry, not necessarily mothers, but um, parents and how parenting is difficult. Like we have something that we can say about that. Um, Cause that's kind of the message I got from Shelly. And there is a deleted scene when, um, when Ed talks with Halling, which is kind of a similar situation about how difficult it was, um, you know, but there's, there's things that, uh, there's things that parents have to do that we don't often think about, but this is, uh, Ed living it and seeing it. Yeah. But like, how is this different? Oh, you know what? Oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. You can finish that thought, but I am just now remembering what was said in the deleted scene with Holling and Ed. Holling says, don't you remember that you were an orphan at one point as well? Um, so I guess you can kind of see that the writers would be dumb to not try to make a connection between this orphan Ed and this orphan bear. And they're mm. both, you know, bear clan and stuff like that. So there's a connection there. It's not super, you know, it's not really played out, but it's just interesting to point out, I guess. Yeah, I, that is definitely rife with exploration. I I can totally buy that if they had went toward that angle. My problem with this is that if you replace the bear with an actual child, like what if Ed actually just found a baby just on the side of the road and he started taking care of it? It would have displayed the same functions as this baby bear. It would have knocked over a popcorn bowl. It would have, you know, gotten out of its carriage and everything. Uh, I don't think that like it would have made that much difference, which comes back to the point of like, why is it a bear? And I feel like they needed to explore that aspect more, whether it's connecting with oh, yeah, Ed nature and his and bear clan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there's something right there. Maybe there's something about, you know, the orphan theme. I think that can actually play really well into it and being like, you know, what does nature have to say about that? How does that play out? How can we change that? How can we try to affect the course of that? That's really interesting too. It, it just feels like this was just something that happened. And I I couldn't glean much from it. I know I'm harping on it super hard. It was just, I I just felt that I walked away from this plot line without seeing much. 
Yeah, I mean, they could have easily probably taken out the Phil and Michelle plotline or something and expanded this. Everybody loves Ed. So like really this could have been a bigger Ed episode. Focus on the angle of orphan, being an orphan. Talk a little more about man versus nature and taming the wild and things like that. I think the episode is better that it has a bear cub instead of just like a baby on the side of the road. I think there was an episode previously where uh, a baby, a lost baby is found, you know, and they're trying to figure out who's going to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, something about, you know, lost bear cub screams like uh, the sort of wild Alaska, you know, the sort of natural Alaska. So I could see that being an easy pitch for the show. It's like, oh yeah, Ed has to foster a baby bear cub. Um, this reminds me also of a uh, Princess the Crane from that episode where uh, Ed uh, is visited by this crane that he raised uh, when it was a baby. It keeps visiting him during its like migration. Uh, so it's not uncommon. I think it would be easy for someone to pitch this as an episode of Northern Exposure, but um, I think it could have used a lot more or it could have been a lot more interesting. Like they could have, they could have fleshed this out a little bit more. Right. Like even on the princess and the crane one, I felt like there was way more underlying things that were happening in there Mm -hmm. compared to here. Yeah. And if we're going to revisit this thread again, then I kind of want to see like a, at least a new spin on it. But if anything, there was no spin. It was just like very surface level. Like Ed finds bear Ed realizes bear is difficult to, uh, parenting is hard. Yeah. (laughs) Parenting is hard. Ed realizes that he likes to bear Ed tries to teach the bear. Ed puts the bear back into nature. Yeah. I really like that angle you were saying of, uh, Ed, you know, makes the mistake of keeping the bear from its mom in the rewrite, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, uh, realizing that if you love something, let it free or, you know, yeah, uh, it's a basic (laughs) storyline. Yeah, I get it. It's a, it's a, I'm not reinventing the wheel oh, here, good. but I, I thought it would have been a little bit more interesting. But anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to keep harping on it. I, I said that we weren't going to do that. Let's move into the next plot line. Uh, Phil and Michelle, you want to go down there? Yeah, I think that one's also a pretty quick one, hopefully, to get through. Uh, to me, it didn't have a whole lot of substance going on, but we do get to see sort of plot-wise uh, the two of them moving back together with their relationship. Um, so we saw Dr. Phil early in the episode in the office when he's giving Ed parenting advice, you know, with the, uh, you know, the little parenting advice he knows, uh, surrogate parenthood and, and, uh, the warm milk bottle. But let's see, I think the next time we see him, it's uh, pretty late. It's like almost 17 minutes. Yeah. I wrote down, I think, so it's the, yeah, yeah, I think this is it. I wrote down that Phil is looking really uh, Patrick Bateman in this scene. <laughs> I don't know why. It's That's just so like funny. The, the attire, like the clothes and maybe the slicked back hair. But he's at the brick and Michelle is now working as a waitress at the brick. Pretty sure she wasn't She wasn't a waitress before this episode, right? No, this is something that is entirely new. She wants to pick up on the side and have a little fun with it. She takes someone's order and she says, okay, hot pea and a four top (laughs) side of Homer's. I tried looking this up and I could not find any information about this. Do you know what those are? Like what their uh, stand-ins are? I meant to look it up and I do not know what it means, but I did notice just now when I was opening up Moose Chick, uh, she has an offer here, hot pea and a four top side of Homer's translation, pancakes with four eggs and home fries. Oh, that's what it could mean. <laughs> really nice. I like that. Well, yeah, she's really busy taking people's orders and then she goes and takes Phil's orders. And of course, this is where it all comes up where Phil's like, hey, 
I, I, I get it. You want to do the whole Kerouac thing. It's great. <laughs> but I just want you to come home at least. Like, I just want you, you know, at least in the same domicile. Yeah, Michelle has been staying at the Brick. Uh, they are split up right now. And she's been staying at the Brick in the um, the extra room above the Brick. And now, as obviously, she's working as a waitress now at the Brick. And I guess Phil just sees this as some sort of um, expression of freedom that she's trying to um, live out. But I think she also expresses that it's more than that. I know by the end of the episode, she says nothing has changed. Like, I'm still the same. I still want to be the same me that I am right now, but I'm going to move. You know, I think I want to move back in. We'll get to that at the end of the plot line. Um, In this uh, scene here, she does end up asking Phil to come stop by her room some night after work. And Phil is grateful for this, uh, though it just, it turns out that it's just Michelle needs help with uh, her computer. She's having a problem with her computer and her new inkjet. And um, she calls Phil Mr. Cyber. So he's going to help her with, uh, yeah, that's something that we don't get a whole lot of, but that certainly is an aspect of his character that is like in the show Bible. It must be because in early episodes, like Ed is afraid of his computer trying to write a screenplay is afraid of uh, working with computers and oh yeah uh, Phil helps him with that. I think there's other episodes where Phil is uh, I know that Michelle works on her computer often. You know, we see that early on when they're introduced, but I guess that is an aspect that you know, it's there that it's not really investigated too much, but Phil is good with uh, you know, electronics and computers. Um but he's not offended by this or at least he doesn't show it. He says, "No problem. I'd be glad to." So he's going to go help her out with her computer. Um, did you notice the book that uh, Phil is reading in this scene? It's Is it like a, a Second Sex? Is that what it is? Yeah, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. It's um, regarded as a groundbreaking work of feminist philosophy, says Wikipedia. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. Do you know Do you know much about it? No, I've never even heard about it. Um, but yeah, it's a, big, it's a big text in uh, feminist philosophy. All right, and that brings us to the next scene with Phil... Well, repairing the machine that he promised that he would do. He's looking through it. He's trying to fix it. And he starts asking Michelle how she's doing over here. And it turns out, well, her answer is multifaceted because she has now taken up smoking alongside her waitering job, which Phil replies back with like, you know, you never used to smoke. What are you talking about? Like, what is happening here? And the notion of you even waitressing is ridiculous. Like if we were if we were back in California and I asked you to waitress, you would rather be eaten by the coyotes. So that brings to the notion that it's the environment that's doing something. It's Sicily, Alaska. And Michelle kind of kind of gives weight to those thoughts because she's like, you know, I do think that's kind of true. Something about this place. It's like really changing me. Yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting scene because of that sort of um, progression of like the, the beats throughout the scene. It's like... Um, Michelle is smoking. Phil says, like, why are you doing all this? There must be some sort of underlying anxiety happening here. And Michelle says that she loves what she's doing. I wrote, sorry, I just wrote this down. I wanted to bring it up. She says, look at this, three nights of tips. Do I have to declare this? You know, <laughs> the amount of like money she's gotten there. Um, so she argues that, no, she's, um, you know, Phil thinks that she's just like, anxious about having left him or something's bothering her and she's trying to mask this with, uh, you know, smoking and different uh, explorations of freedom or something. But I do like the way that the scene resolves with how Michelle 
does ponder that idea. Something She says there's something very freeing about this place, about Sicily. And um, yeah, I don't know if that is necessarily like baked into the the big message of this plot line. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily what is being said by this plot line, but it is an interesting thought. And I hope that that, that thought is explored in the next, I guess, two episodes, like what we have left. Mm. I think it actually kind of is for this episode. Okay. Yeah. Do yeah. you mean by the nature theme or like the freeing aspect of this environment? Oh, I like that. Yeah. No, I just meant like I don't I don't fully remember like if this if this plot line had like a message to it. You know what I'm saying? Like oh. <laughs> it just felt kind of uh more of just service of the plot of getting them back together, maybe. But I could be wrong. Yeah. I think that there actually is something there. Okay. okay. I, I I don't necessarily buy into it. Uh, if you were applying this into real life, mm-hmm. but in the show, I can kind of see what's happening. Uh, okay. let me, let yeah, me yeah, thread yeah. the needle. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me bring us to the next scene, which is back at the brick and Phil walks in, spots Michelle still, uh, waitressing. And that sends him into a spiral of despair where he goes into the bar, orders some whiskey with Maurice who's also sitting there <laughs> and we'll get to him soon enough. Yeah. This is a very short plot line, but he's in a dark place as well. His idea of trying to reinvigorate Sicily isn't going so hot. Uh, I think you could maybe try to spin that also of like Maurice trying to shape the environment around him as well. You can maybe make an argument for that, which I, I would buy. But the whole big thing about this is that Maurice is saying that he, he spins his tell about Ozymandias <laughs> and that he's the king of nothing, that he cannot make this town grow. And Phil says, you know, you lured me here by promising that it was just around the corner of booming. It was going to be like the next place. I'm sure he did that same spiel that he did with Joel Fleischman saying that it's the, what was it, the Riviera? The Alaskan the, the Riviera. Yeah, I think that was, yes. um, that's a phrase from Pete Gillum or whatever, though mm-hmm. Maurice may echo it. I can't remember. They say that in the first episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's trying to sell him on that, and he he took it hook, line, and sinker. But it turns out that Sicily isn't doing so hot, and that's when Phil, you know, just lets loose and says that, like, you know, this place has been nothing but a disaster. It's letting me sunk into agoraphobia. It's you know, I've lost my marriage. Possibly, I guess, you know, just my my sanity, my <laughs> my way of thinking, just my livelihood. Just like I'm not doing great, and it's because of this environment. I think that's kind of an interesting parallel because with Michelle, she finds it freeing to yeah. be in this in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with Phil, he finds it anything but. It's almost too much, but in some way, he's not embracing it until the very end of the scene where he just lets loose on the jukebox because it's playing the same song of when they were coming into town. And that's just reminding him that, hey, he's stuck here forever. Yeah. Yeah, he just goes and uh, damages Hollings' property. Yeah, it's playing that song, um, Going Up to the Country by Canned Heat. And indeed, it is the song that was playing on the radio when Phil and Michelle were driving into Sicily. When he hears that song, he tells Eugene to um, to pour him a double, like make you know pour him another drink. And then, yeah, this is all boiling over when... He tells Maurice, I mortgaged my future to a ghost town, as you were saying how, you know, Maurice is uh, depressed that Sicily is dwindling and he promised 
Phil says, you promised me that this was a boom, you know, a town that was going to boom and uh, it's falling apart. It's all falling apart. And he rushes and yeah, destroys the, the jukebox here, which I guess is what um, inspires Michelle to come back home because the next scene, Michelle pays Phil a visit in his office and she brought him a sandwich from the brick. Um, she says prosciutto and provolone light on the Dijon, just how you like it. And she's here because she says he wants to come back home. She makes it clear, as I said before, she says nothing has changed. I'm keeping my job, but I'm moving my things out of the brick. And she says the reasoning here is apparently when Phil attacked the jukebox, it moved something in her. And that's what has changed this sort of status quo here. So I'm hoping, Charles, maybe you got some some interpretation of this. Yeah. So my idea of it is that Phil has been holding back from embracing Sicily because yeah. the way that he's trying to maneuver with Michelle is like a quasi nice guy type of thing, but not really. Uh, I don't think he's like really expressing himself until he starts attacking the jukebox like a wild animal that Michelle says, which if we're being generous, maybe there's something there between, you know, that line, like uh-huh. a wild animal and yeah, the yeah. literal wild animal that we're having in this episode. I don't buy that one too much because it feels like they really didn't yeah, focus they, too they much on that aspect. It. It's like, it's sort they of could have done it better. You could have like tied it together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right, you're right. And the, the idea that Phil finally lets loose kind of embraces this feral nature of Sicily uh, that's what makes Michelle want to come back and be like, all right, we can give it another try. I can buy that, but I also don't like the implications of that because that <laughs> means that like in real life, Hey, if there's a problem, you just let loose, just like <laughs> let your anger take the reins and just start attacking and people will reward you for that behavior, which I don't, I don't agree with. This is kind of reminding me of the sort of through line or the, the message of a uh, Zarya. Gosh, which I can't remember what it was, but there's like a quote that, what is it? It's like Franz Kafka or something like what's the, uh, or doctor. He's the doctor. He's not Franz Kafka. He's the doctor. Joel plays like a doctor and he says something to Maggie about like, gosh, do you remember this? Cause I don't, I'm no, going to misquote it. Okay. Talk. I'm going to find it real fast. He says as sort of one of those like closing Closing lines here. Uh, he says, we've struggled so hard with the tangible, we've forgotten the intangible. And I think they're talking about like emotions and feelings versus, um, you know, science, hard science, because it's coming from he's a doctor, you know, or something like that. It's reminding me of that a lot, where if you're applying it to this episode, <laughs> what you're saying, the problem with that line of thinking is just, You know, if you just go with your gut instinct and you embrace the wild side, you're just going to beat up a jukebox and destroy property instead of uh, solving your problem. Yeah, I think, okay, so this is how I would have done, okay, we're in rewrite mode again. We've been doing this recently. You have Phil attack the jukebox, let him let loose. But instead of doing that kind of strange fade out, like I was not expecting that scene to fade out right there. Oh, yeah. You have Phil then like turn around. And be like, all right, I'll admit it. I miss you, Michelle. I messed up. I'm sorry. I'll admit it. I admit it. I'm wrong. And I just want you back with me so that we can restart our life again in this new place. And, you know, write this whole beautiful speech. 
And then we get to this scene where Michelle's like, all right, you finally like, you know, admitted your feelings. I get it. Boom. Yeah. But instead we didn't get that. We like, it, it's implied, it was, I guess. It was a mistake to fade out on that, uh, on him like beating up the jukebox. <laughs> Something else should have happened. Like they could have turned it into a comedy beat afterwards, you know? The easy uh, example is like in the first episode of Northern Exposure, Joel, like he's he's yelling on the phone or he's like beating up his steering wheel of his car. And then it cuts to like people just watching him have this outburst. And then it's funny, you know, or it's like a interesting beat. Um, this is kind of dark, you know, I guess ending on him like attacking the jukebox. I can't remember. Does the jukebox like spark and smoke or anything? Because it might as well. Like it's... <laughs> it's it's insane like what's happening here like it should be like catching on fire or something yeah it's just a crazy fade out because i thought for sure like someone was gonna stop him like maybe hauling comes out and stops him yeah or he would have did the thing i just said i i really did not think that they were gonna end the scene like it's that. possible that that happened in the editing that maybe the scene does go on a little longer it just didn't work properly for the pacing or just like it just didn't Whatever they thought they were shooting didn't work out. So they're like, oh, we'll just we'll just fade it out before that happens. But I mean, maybe that's also just how it was written too. You know, they just decided mm -hmm. not to write anything after that, or they decided not to shoot anything after that. They're just like, yeah, just have them beat up the jukebox and that'll be the end of the scene. <laughs> well, that's how their plot line resolves. Yeah. So I guess they're back together, but it's a little Michelle does say, you know, things haven't changed. So curious to see what that means in the next episode. And uh, I do like the moment earlier in the episode that, I, you know, I mentioned already, but I like that Michelle says, maybe there is something about this place that's freeing. And it's something that, you know, maybe snuck up on me, but I'm embracing it now. And I like that. Maybe Phil can also do the same, uh, <laughs> though hopefully not you know, viciously maul, you know, somebody or <laughs> destroy uh, some piece of equipment. Hopefully um, it'll, it'll express itself in interesting ways. All right. Well, let's move on to the next plot line. I, I want to do Maurice last. Yeah. Okay. Let's do like Chris that. and Maggie. Yeah. Let's rewind right back at the beginning where Chris and Maggie are preparing fish. And mm -hmm. turns out they've been going on a lot of fish dates on Friday. Something that Maggie's been looking forward to. And they've gone on four of them. So far. Yeah. Uh, Maggie brings this up. She says, do you realize that this is the fourth week in a row that we've gone night fishing? I really look forward to Fridays. And as soon as that's made apparent, Chris, we can see, becomes uneasy, uh, a little anxious about this situation. And um, he immediately starts making excuses. He's like, you know, I'm not actually that hungry and I might be getting a cold. So it's maybe it's not good that you know, I don't want to get you sick. And also I've got this big day planned tomorrow. I've got all this work to do that I promised I would, I promised Maurice I would do all this at K-Bear, yada, yada. So he finds a way to excuse himself here. Um, I, I did want to mention that the scene opens. It comes right after Ed is um, talking with Dr. Capra about surrogate parenthood. And then it cuts to sort of a close-up of, Chris uh, cleaning the fish and Maggie's in the background, maybe pouring some wine or doing something, uh, you know, something else. And Chris says, there's going to be a lot of single parent families in Fishville tonight, you know, cause they caught so many fish, I guess. Oh, um, yeah, that's a yeah, good catch. It's, it's like an interesting, it just, 
there's definitely like a sort of, what do you call that? Transitional element between the last scene and this one. Cause it's mm-hmm. coming up from surrogate parenthood to single parent families. And it's like a, it's like a match cut with words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there is something later on in the episode. I guess we can talk about it right now if you don't mind, but it's just an off, like a quick, um, just like an offbeat little conversation that starts out a scene um, where, you know, Chris is back with Maggie and um, she's like tying up a fishing lure and Chris is talking about fishing. It's pretty technical. So I didn't fully understand it, but it kind of sounds like he's talking about like, um, well, he's talking about how the fishing population is like dwindling because of catch and release or something like that. He's like a 50% Uh, survival rate. I wonder if that has anything to do with anything. Just reminded me of uh, this this moment here as well, but yeah, uh, I'd have to rewatch the scene. I didn't catch anything there, but I wouldn't rule anything out. Yeah, um, you know, Northern Exposure is very good at weaving in small little words like that, peppering them in in order to imbue a larger meaning toward the whole themes. The sort of idea I sensed from it, but I couldn't really. It didn't translate, or I didn't get it. I didn't understand it, but it kind of felt like Chris was trying to say something like, or. What Chris was saying was trying to express an idea like, um, you know, our act of going fishing, this thing that we, this, um, this fun activity that we do has its consequences. You know, it has like, um, because we're doing this, there's less fish out there or something like that. I don't know. Hmm. That's an interesting interpretation of what you're trying to go for. Well, I think it needs a little more work. It's a little half-baked, but maybe maybe uh, it'll reveal itself to us as we continue. But I was a little... Anytime there's like a little sort of conversation that seems like it has nothing to do with anything, I'm always like, wait, mm-hmm. it was written, it was filmed. You know, like there's a reason... It's, it wasn't edited <laughs> out. I mean, maybe there are reasons... There are plenty of reasons why it's hard to edit something out because it's like, oh, we can't really cut this because then it doesn't make sense. But, uh, you know, it made it as far as you know, on the page and it was shot. So there must be some reason why that line stayed in, but I'm that's probably a good reading, logic. reading too far into it. Yeah. That's like, know. no, no, no. I think that's good thinking right there. That like, it honestly is like yeah. a lot of people don't put enough faith into the writer's ability. You're like, right. they think about this all day long and they go through rewrite over rewrite over rewrite. It's not like they like one and done it, just banged it out of their uh, <laughs> dome. And they were like, all right, that's it. <laughs> It's good enough. It's for nothing. It's for ambiance is why they said it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's revisit that scene once we get to it. Okay. All right. Well, um, the next scene is, uh, Chris is in his shack and he's going to, um, oh, he hasn't even announced this yet, but he's explaining it to Walt who comes by. Chris has got all this, you know, it's just like sort of experiment shack, you know, I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I was like, we don't really get to see Chris's um, trailer that much anymore. I kind of miss that, but it makes sense that Chris is here. Because this is a bit of a science experiment, so I'll allow the uh, the set, you know, <laughs> to be here. But Walt has come by to borrow an acetylene torch. He's got to do some welding on, uh, I think he said like his smoker or something, but that doesn't matter because he's just stopping by and grabbing the torch and he's like, whoa, what's going on here? Chris has been blacking out his windows. He's got these funny goggles and he's in his pajamas. Chris explains the whole deal to to Walt. It's that opening soundbite that we played. He's going to do lucid dreaming because um, it's a whole new way of working out your problems. You know, like if you got an issue with a woman, 
So hopefully if he can sort out his feelings and his dreams, it will solve whatever issue he's got, whatever hangup he has with, um, with Maggie. I think the goggles are pretty cool in this scene. They, I don't know exactly what they are, but they feel like, uh, what do you call that? Like the dark glass that protects you from welding, but they're, they're kind of, they're goggles. They're not just like a whole Mm -hmm. visor. It's like little eye, little lenses, I guess. But very clearly there's all these like cables and wires running to these goggles. And when they switch on, uh, they turn on, there's like red Christmas lights inside the, they're just like red Christmas lights plugged into the lenses. (laughs) It's kind of cool. Yeah, I do want to note that Walt says that, you know, it this isn't like some sort of a Timothy Leary thing, is it? <laughs> and I had to look that up. I didn't actually know about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is, uh, you know, sad for this guy because I feel like he probably did a lot to influence America. But yeah, he was uh, an American psychologist and author. He was known for a strong advocacy of psychedelic drugs. Did a lot of... Uh, LSD. A lot of experiments right. of that nature. Yeah. Right. Uh, President Richard Nixon described him as the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> and he was doing research at Harvard. And, you know, after he left Harvard, he started promoting psychedelic drugs, became a well-known figure of the counterculture of the 1960s. And he popularized catchphrases that promoted his philosophy, such as turn on, tune in, drop out, set in setting, and think for yourself and question authority. Hell yeah, Timothy Leary. Um, but no, this is just lucid dreaming. The way it works is, um, okay, I don't know how this works exactly, but Chris says like these goggles are, you know, designed to track my eye movements. And once it uh, registers rapid eye movement, you know, then they'll start flashing because if it registers rapid eye movement, that means I'm in deep sleep. And if the lights start flashing, then like maybe I could see that in my dream. Like maybe they'll flash in my dream and it'll let me know that I'm in deep sleep and it's time to start lucid dreaming. Something like that. First off, I don't know how the uh, how the goggles would track eye movement. That seems like pretty sophisticated uh, technology. Yeah, I feel like that's something that Apple is working on right yeah. now in the year 2024 <laughs> on how to crack that technology. The flashing lights me are that, simple enough, but yeah. Yeah, I get that, but like tracking eye movement, it's like Chris, Chris figured it out in his, his makesh- makeshift shed. He should be pitching this to Maurice, you know, as a business venture, I guess. Well, he goes to bed and uh, we get like a dissolve. I don't think it's a commercial break. I think it's just a dissolve to the next scene where we see the clock and it says 1.40. Pretty sure that means PM because we do learn that he's been doing this in the afternoons, like afternoon naps. He says something Mm -hmm. later about uh, like it's that light sleep that is really conducive to lucid dreaming, something like that. But um, the Christmas tree lights come on. The red lights in his goggles start uh, flashing and we're transported into Chris's dream in which he looks exactly like Agent Smith from The Matrix. He's got like the (laughs) black suit and the glasses, the sunglasses. Um, But there's like a bellhop in the background, something like that, telling Chris about the amenities of this hotel that he's staying at. And he says, I hope you enjoy your stay at the Woodbine. And Chris is just like, okay, this is great. Just got to wait for Maggie to show up. He jumps onto the bed and there's a knock on his door and it's, um, it's not Maggie. It's a hotel manager by the name of Melissa Chenault. She says like his card was declined, which immediately seems like 
I don't know, like if Chris is really in control of his lucid dreaming, he should be able to get himself out of this situation. But I guess the reason why he doesn't, well, I guess we'll see it as this goes on, but what happens well, in the scene? Yeah. Yeah. That That's what I'm, yeah. I have such a, I have a difficulty trying to understand this entire plot line because like you said, he should be in control of his own dream. He is the master of his own domain. So, you know, credit card, fizzling out yeah he should be able to produce another one or he could just avert the problem entirely by not having that happen but what happens is that michelle says no your credit card was declined let me come in let me manage your things let me go make sure that everything is okay she's a very dominating type of woman which is something that was revealed to us earlier on in the season that chris is attracted to because he was attracted to maggie's domineering personality when she was uh as a city council member and so that really suits his fancy, and then they start cheating. He starts cheating on Maggie with her, with, with his dream. Woman. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, Which let, let me let me butt in real fast just to say I think uh, what I was getting at is a uh, maybe Chris really is in control. You know, even though she says your card is declined, maybe he actively wants this sort of dominatrix woman. Right. So he's like inviting right. it. Yeah, go, go that's ahead. what I'm trying to. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're, we we're on, we're on the same wavelength. Yeah. Like, he's doing lucid dreaming because he wants to be actively in control of his dreams rather than being a random hodgepodge of things that scatter about his mind. So what you're telling me right now is that Chris wants to cheat on Maggie. Like, he wills this into existence, (laughs) which is wild to me. It's like, what is happening? Why? I mean, that is what's happening in the episode, I think, because he feels guilty about it and Maggie is angry at him about it. I guess we'll get to it. But uh, I think that's what's happening is he's cheating on Maggie, even if it is just a dream. Because, well, let's continue because um, he does wake up from this dream. And I wrote down, uh, Chris wakes up, the lucid dream is not going the way he wanted. Like he seems disappointed when he wakes up. But really, in retrospect, I think he's uh, maybe kind of disgusted at himself or disappointed in himself that, you know... Uh, he he set out to try to make things right with Maggie and he's like succumbing to his sexual desires or something like that. Yeah, I, I know this is a television show. So it's like it's stupid to try to imbue logic into this. But <laughs> if Chris was truly feeling guilty, then he would just stop lucid dreaming. He would just talk to Maggie about this and be like, hey, I tried lucid dreaming and this is what it showed me which makes me think that like maybe there's something going on within me. Let's talk mm. this out. But he he wants to he wants to continue this. So he 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 continues lucid dreaming and not only that, he even lies to Maggie in the next scene, which yeah. is where he goes to visit her. Well, he brings let her me balloons. let me cut in real fast. Oh. Let me cut in real fast just to say um maybe when he's in the dream state. No, no, no. I was going to say I was just going to say maybe when he's in the dream state, um he like loses control. But that defeats the purpose of saying it's a lucid dream. You should be in right. control. So, well, I guess. Well, okay, it's well, like his his sexual desires are he, taking over or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could make an argument to be like, if you just randomly dream, you might be literally anywhere. It would not be the woodbine, but because he's lucid dreaming, he can at least will the woodbine into existence, and from there, it's uncontrollable. You know, or like you know, his subconscious dice. takes over a certain, like right, his primal instincts right. take over or something. 
But it's still that's still kind yeah. of his fault for even putting himself in that situation in the first place. Yeah. It's like putting yourself next to an alligator and be like, all right, <laughs> exactly. what happens you're happens. Right. It's you're like, right. well, odds are you're going to get bit by an alligator, man. <laughs> like you put yourself there. You're right. The idea, the whole idea of lucid dreaming was because he would be in control. But knowingly now that he realizes he can't control that situation, if it appears to him, then why go back? Maybe he's maybe he's trying to master it, but he, he clearly can't. Sorry to cut that yeah. off, but but yeah, you can you can continue. <laughs> no, it's all right. Uh, I, I'm gonna be generous and say like I'm gonna give it the uh, the big old. He's just trying to work things out. Let's just slap that at the top. Let's see where it carries us, because I feel like that's just what he's gonna say. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we're back at Maggie's place. He's brought dinner. I want to say it's turkey lasagna. That's what he says. Yeah, I think he must have picked it up from the brick, which is nice. Um, Maggie is uncorking the wine, and um, he's got. Oh yeah, sorry, I was I, I cut you off, but he's got um, like a little vase of uh, flowers. There's like a couple tulips and um, the turkey lasagna from the brick, and uh, some balloons and stuff. And she says, "What's the occasion?" And he says, "No special occasion." They were having a big closeout sale over at Rusty's. I wanted to bring this up. This is a little diversion, but there is actually a deleted scene with Rusty. And Rusty is apparently like um, Hayden Keyes' brother or cousin or something. He's, he's a relative of Hayden Keyes. And there's a scene where Maurice is trying to convince Rusty not to leave. We hear from this scene that Chris says there's a, a closeout sale. So Rusty has closed his business down and he's leaving Sicily. And this, obviously, we'll talk about it in Maurice's plot line, but Maurice doesn't want any more population drop. If Rusty leaves, that's like one less person. And if the business is gone, that's just like, that's not a good look for Sicily. But there is an interesting little tidbit on the Moose Chick uh, website entry for this episode. There's a correspondence from the actor Mark Lewis, who played Rusty Keys. And uh, he wrote... I was hired to play Rusty Keys in the Ursa Minor episode. I played the owner of the party supply and gun shop in Sicily. Rusty is Hayden's brother. In my scene, Rusty is trying to skip out of town without paying back rent to Maurice. Maurice confronts Rusty <laughs> as he is packing the station wagon in front of the store. My favorite line from the scene was, but geez, Maurice, party supplies don't move like they used to, and everybody's already got a firearm. Another part of the scene was Hayden wanting me to give him a box of glitter pins. Okay, I did not see this in the deleted scenes on the DVD. So it might have been shot. It might have just been script. But we didn't get to see it on the deleted scenes. But he says, uh, overall, it was an amazing experience to do a scene with Barry Corbin. Also, in the episode, Chris was experimenting with lucid dreaming. And he was putting himself in a Paris hotel. The scene was cut and never made it on the air. I never heard why. Made the Paris Hotel? I mean, we do see the other hotel. I don't know. I figured they decided um, that it was more interesting to have Chris rolling around on a bed in Paris with a beautiful concierge than seeing a big guy with a beard try to skip out of town. Okay. Uh, anyway, he was cut out of the episode. Uh, even though I never made it on the air, I still get residual checks for the episode from Universal. I hope this helps to clear things up. Please let me know that you got this. I would love to answer any other questions you may have. Thanks for checking in. Cheers, Mark. That is pretty cool that actors, even if they're cut out of the scene, um, you know, still get still get some royalties, you know. Hmm. I wonder how much. I wonder yeah, if it's yeah. dictated, like, if he's on the screen or not. 
Huh. That's true. Yeah. There might be, might not be a whole lot, but it's still kind of funny. It's still kind of cool. That's so interesting. Anyway. I have not stepped foot into a, uh, a party city in like what, maybe decades. Yeah. When is the last time you went to party city? Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I think I've been to like a spirit Halloween before I've been to a party city. Yeah. But that one has got a purpose. Sometimes you got to find that, <laughs> you know, find the Halloween thing. Party city is just like, is it still, is that business yeah, still alive? I think they still have them. Um, there's like helium balloons, I guess is a big thing that you can typically get that at certain grocery stores now. Yeah. I mean, party supplies, plates, napkins. Yeah. It's going up. The net That's income a- is up. Boy, this is oh, from 2014 really? numbers. I mean, these, oh, okay. are, these are 2014, but like. <laughs> Definitely probably just, took a hit during pandemic, I would assume. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, hey, 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 hey. I, I got, I scrolled to the end. It says, I'm not even going to read it, but it says 2023 to present bankruptcy and restructuring. <laughs> okay. It so doesn't they, have a happy ending. <laughs> restructuring, I guess. Um, okay. But I thought that was cool. The deleted scene with rusty keys and anything connected to Hayden is funny, I think. Um, but Maggie is uncorking the wine and she asks Chris, so did you do it? You know, what you were talking about on the radio in the morning, um, what's it called? Lucid dreaming experiment. So I think this is cool that I don't think it happens often or at all that uh, the townsfolk of Sicily reference Chris's broadcasts. I mean, we all as audience members get to hear it just as people listening on the radio uh, in Sicily get to hear Chris's uh, broadcasts. But I think it's kind of cool focusing part of the plot of an episode on like the things that Chris is saying on the episode and how other characters respond to it. You know, do they have Mm -hmm. any commentary they would like to offer or answers, you know, because oftentimes Chris asks a lot of answers. I think there are a lot of episodes that pose a lot of questions and we get to see the answer to those questions from various perspectives, like the different characters in the episodes. But I do like the idea that, Maggie is, I guess, dating a guy who is talking very openly and very vulnerably on the radio for everyone to hear, including her, you know? But anyway, she asks, you're hearing about these? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. What movie did we watch? And it might have been, I'm I'm like almost 100% sure it was for the Patreon, where it was a very similar thing where someone was reading out their thoughts on the radio. Gross point. And they get confronted. Gross point blank. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But that was a cool, that was a great scene, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah, that was a good scene. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was trying to remember that. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead and listen to our Patreon if you'd like to hear us talk about. Well, we talk briefly about the movie Gross Point Blank, and we revisit one of our favorite episodes of the series, Gross Point Four Eight Two Three Zero. We got a Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Every month we have a bonus episode talking tangentially about Northern Exposure, things uh, relating to the show or the uh, the cast and crew. Um, and yeah, any sort of support we get there helps to pay for hosting fees and, you know, just shows your support for our podcast. Um, but yeah, that was a really fun, that was a really fun episode. It's kind of about like, with Gross Point Blank, it's about like high school reunions and then Gross point four eight two three zero. Just still like a showstopper. Great episode. Yeah, absolutely favorite episode of Northern Exposure. Still love it to this day. <laughs> but let's let's come back yeah. to this plot line right here. Sorry that we keep going on a tangent right here. Uh, 
this is where Maggie tries to tell Krista, like, hey, you had full control over what you wanted to see. So what did you do? And Chris lies to her and says that he had a dream about horseback riding with his uh, his uncle Roy. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of childhood things that he needed to resolve with him. So he was like an imago, 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 imago yeah. figure with them. And he wanted to really settle things out right there. So he's lying to Maggie. I thought that term was interesting. Imago, I had never heard of it before, but there's a Wikipedia article about it. I'll just read from there. Uh, it's a biology term. Uh, referencing the last stage an insect attains during its metamorphosis, the process of um, growth and development, of course. It's also called the imaginal stage, the stage in which the insect attains maturity. Um, So I guess in psychology you could, or I guess in the way that um, Chris is using it here in this psychoanalysis way, it's like him attaining his final form or his mature form, uh, Uncle Roy Bauer was a big figure in his uh, in in Chris's maturity, I guess. Um, but this is all just a lie, honestly. I, maybe the that part about Roy Bauer is true, but Chris did not dream about Uncle Roy Bauer. How? Yeah. Go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. I just realized this. I just realized it. How cool would this episode have been? Had we just scraped this entire thing about him with a uh, with a domineering woman? And every single time he lucid dream, he went to like a pivotal moment of his life. So let's say this one actually was real, and he had like a thing with his uh, his uncle. Yeah, and it's you know it's a short scene, but like he still resolves it within that time. And then he goes lucid dreaming again, and he goes to a different memory of Chris's thing, and he does it like two or three more times, maybe not three more times, it might be too much in, in uh, this episode. But let's say he does it a couple it's a more three times. hour episode. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does all these yeah. things, yeah. and then like they all have like a connecting. Th- Red, right. That is his problem with commitment with Maggie in this. Uh, yeah. Because obviously he has a problem on, you know, the idea of going on repeated dates with her on the same activity gives him anxiety. So there must be some sort of underlying cause. And so he goes through like all those moments in his life with his lucid dreaming and he doesn't plan for it. He has no idea that this is like what he signed up for. He, he just gets brought into all these stuff. And then like that helps him work out his issues. How cool would that have been? Yeah. I think what you're getting at is. An example like that, and like some of the other great dreaming episodes of Northern Exposure, is like there's an interpretation of what is happening in the dream and how the characters think about that, like interpreting what happened in the dream and how they could apply it to their life. Whereas in this episode, the dream is just used as a fancy way to have Chris um, cheat. It's just cheating. And obviously, it wouldn't be a good thing if Chris was cheating on Maggie with a real person. So maybe this is an easier way for the writers to to put that in, but I think they're um, they're they're losing a lot. They're giving up a lot by not having an episode about dreams and not it uh, being about interpretation. It's just being about <laughs> an outlet for cheating, I guess. <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm not trying to simplify it too much, but there is it's a about distinction. Control. Yeah, there is a distinction that uh, I think it's more interesting for the dreams in an episode to be about how they're interpreted and not just as a, um, an avenue for expressing something else. I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I'm kind of like, no, 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 no. I I feel like I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that that would have been much more interesting. I am just, I just can't stop imagining how cool it would be (laughs) to like have Chris work out all these issues within like a short four to five minute spurt. And he does it like three times. 
God, that would have been so great. Because oftentimes they're like dragged out. You know, I'm like trying to resolve this one thing. But what if they were done like in a mini thing? And like he truly did resolve it within that short amount of time. Oh, gosh, what could have been? But anyway, uh, going forward on the plot line. Wait, wait. Before you go forward, I did just want to say that Maggie clearly doesn't buy Chris's uh, his lie. Oh, right. And she's like, come on, you could do anything. If you could do anything and you dreamt about like going horseback riding and Chris, you know, he, a, a lot of times in the scene, he keeps changing the subject. He's like, oh, do you have like uh, some Parmesan cheese? And he's like, oh, here, you want a breadstick? And I do like, it's like, it's the uh, classic, like it's a literal breadstick. It's not like a loaf of bread. You know, it's like a little <laughs> crunchy piece of a breadstick. But that was all I wanted to point out was that Maggie is suspecting a sexual desire instead. That does go into the next scene, though. I skipped over this one where okay. Maggie does go to Ruth Ann's store and she's asking about Chris. She's like, oh, do you know where he's at? And she's like, oh, he's, you know, he's over at the shed. He's starting to lose a dream and everything. And Maggie says like, oh, I can well, like, you know, I'm heading over there myself. I can go bring the uh, bring the thing that you need to give to Chris. Yeah. Also in this scene, not really sure. I, I think it's not super clear what is being discussed, but um, Maggie is trying to explain to Ruthann, oh yeah, Chris, if he's gone, then he's probably like in his shed. He's been doing the lucid dreaming thing. And then Ruthann says, well, I suppose that's one name for it. Maggie says, you think? And Ruthann says, no, it's probably just lucid dreaming like you're saying. But my question is, what does Ruthann think? Like, what is she, when she says, I suppose that's one name for it. Like, is she suggesting that Chris is cheating on Maggie? Is she suggesting that Chris is, like, masturbating or something? Like, what? Is yeah, that? it's actually, it's I, I do want to talk about this. Okay. It's actually kind of weird because in the previous scene in Maggie's house, Maggie does kind of make a point to be like, you know, you could dream about anything. Yeah. And you really dreamt about your uncle. And it kind of read to me, it implied kind of like she she thought Chris might want to would have went to a more risque area like him. And now, yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, it, it just kind of from her body language or her tone, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading way too much into it because now in this scene, it kind of gives an impression as well where Ruth Ann is kind of alluding to like, Hey, maybe he's cheating on you, which is kind of a wild thing. In yeah. My opinion, I don't think Ruth Ann would. That's a, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a wild yeah, that's, jump. It makes no sense for Ruth Ann to say that, but for like the devil on the devil on Maggie's shoulder, sure, it makes sense. But Ruth Ann would have no reason to say that, I guess. Maybe yeah, we know Chris is. as hooking up with many women. Maybe that's part of it. But still, I, I didn't think that would be where Ruth Ann would jump to. But um, I should also say maybe it's, maybe it feels a little unclear because, um, the writers are nervous about like censorship and like not, you know, writing something that would not be able to be aired. So they're, tr they're keeping it vague, but to me, it just seems unclear. It doesn't seem vague. Um, but I did want, this is just a silly little production note that I had. The scene begins, I think with Maggie asking Ruth Ann if she has any cheesecloth and she's like, you know, they always sell you like a whole package of cheesecloth, but I, uh, <laughs> I wrote down, Maggie asks Ruthann for cheesecloth. I said, check the lens. It's glossy as hell. You know, uh, you know, like <laughs> people put cheesecloth on camera lenses to make like a glossy effect. The whole scene mm -hmm. has like a very glam sort of gloss to it. 
And yeah, it just feels like they put cheesecloth on the lens of the camera. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that is so funny. Um, but anyway, Maggie takes the, um, Ruth Ann has some ads that she needs to drop off to Chris. So Maggie says, I'm going to go check out, um, I'll go by Chris's shack and I'll see him. Right. And this is where we warp back into Chris's Lisa dreaming. He's having the affair. He's cheating on Maggie with this concierge and Maggie uh, steps into hotel the Hotel manager, hotel manager. Don't, uh, oh, yes, 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 <laughs> don't belittle her position. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, uh, but Maggie steps in and. <laughs> She notices that, you know, true to his word, he really is lucid dreaming. But then because he's lucid dreaming, I guess we're led to believe that like any sound can also transmit into Chris. Just like the lights on the goggles could, you know, appear to him. So could the sound of a door. And that's how he's alerted to Maggie's presence. Mm -hmm. And so he says like, oh, that's Maggie. Like, I got to, <laughs> we got to stop doing this affair like, right here. Yeah, he's talking to Chenault and he's like, we got to be quiet. She's going to, Maggie's going to catch us. Right. And he's actually, he's sleep talking like in real life. He's saying that too. So Maggie can hear him. Right. And Maggie now appears in the dream. She's in the doorway and Chris goes over there and it's weird because he's buck naked, which how does that not raise any alarm bells in Maggie? Like if you, do you answer the door naked? Like, no, like, of course not. <laughs> so he answers the door naked. Maggie's like, Hey, are you all right? Chris says that it's, you know, it's like a plumbing thing. And he's going to meet her down. They're going to get another room together. Everything's going to be okay. But no, he goes back, shuts the door, and continues cheating on her. Yeah. A um, couple things I wanted to say here. Well, I do think it is pretty comical how Chris is like, <laughs> I think sleep talking is just funny, like in real life and in movies and stuff. So <laughs> it's crazy that... Um, I think it would have been, I think it would have been really hilarious if like he had a conversation with Maggie while he's asleep it's unclear whether or not the Maggie in Chris's dream is Maggie like actually standing above him, like standing above his bed and talking to him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cut back into the reality. It's very possible. I thought that was what was happening is like Maggie is trying to talk to Chris in his sleep and she appears in his dream. But she may have left the shack at this point because we do. I think when we cut to Maggie, she's like in the doorway. So she may have already left. So who knows? But um Another thing I wanted to point out, Charles, did you catch the drink order that um, Chenault's place is here? Uh, doers, right? Doers, doers straight? straight up, yeah. <laughs> and that's what Phil drinks, right? Oh, does he drink? No, he just says scotch. Oh, he just says yeah. scotch. Okay. I wonder if doers has been mentioned on Northern Exposure before. We're we're fans of doers, uh, Charles, I can say. I think uh, our, <laughs> our, our like nerdiness around doers began with uh, – the West Wing. It's like in the first line of the West Wing, right? And they drink a lot of doers in the West Wing, right? They drink a lot of doers in the season two episode, Lame Duck Congress, where at the end, Toby meets up with a congressman to ask that, you know, is he going to be contributing to the vote? Yeah, I think you should. He tries to pressure him. And it turns out that he's stepping away because his constituents are voting him out of office. And he opens that line of dialogue by ordering doers. And I think it's like, it's a really, it's a very purposeful line. And I think that's where we got that obsession with doers as well. Yeah. The first line of the West Wing uh, is two absolute martinis up, another doers rocks. So yeah, in the first line of uh, the West Wing is a reference to doers as well. Uh, and for some reason, that is our scotch of choice, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> for like how long? At this point, it's almost 10 years, right? 
I guess, yeah. Yeah, we've been doing it for like quite a while on the doers. We also drink a lot of Schweppes bitter lemon. Or when we can, it's not a you know, yeah, it's not really it's available so expensive. in uh in America. It's not really available here. You can only I was in uh London last year and it was even kind of hard for me to find it there at the time. Really? They might be phasing it out or something. I'm kind of scared. Oh, that's nonsense. Yeah. Oh, that stuff is so good. <laughs> but that that's from the West Wing, Schweppes bitter lemon. Because it, it was yeah. a thing in in America before it just uh, what would what would even be the Northern Exposure drink like what is referenced the most in Northern Exposure? Well, I would probably say coffee, um, though that's more of a Twin Peaks thing, right? If you had yeah, to put yeah. it to the show, I, I don't think it has Twin its Peaks own. Says that. Oh, Lafitte Rothschild, nineteen sixty-three <laughs> or something. <laughs> like whatever Lafitte Rothschild is mentioned a lot. That yes, line. that one. not only by Joel. I think Phil mentions it. Like other characters mention it as well. Okay, well, we can't we can't get that every single time we go out. <laughs> uh, okay, well, what were we just talking about? I lost my place in my notes. We were talking about Maggie stumbling upon Chris oh, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. shack, which, by the way, I didn't notice this till now. The way that Chris is powering these goggles is through car a car batteries, battery. right? Yeah, yeah, he's got a car battery. That does not look safe. No, yeah. That honestly does not look safe. It's just right there. It feels like it could just fall on him. <laughs> and also, like... Maybe I've just been conditioned by movies, but whenever you see that setup, you think uh, like a torture scene. Yeah, I, I see. It's always used in torture <laughs> sure. scenes. Um, okay, let's keep going here. Chris is in the Sourdough Inn later at, at Ron and Eric's place. I guess, well, he bumps into Maggie there, but he tells her that he's wanting to try to get a game of poker going. And Maggie says that she's there trying to deliver an ant farm. And she sees Chris and she says she f- apologizes for intruding. I think, I don't know if she says in the dream, but sh- she's implying in the dream, right? And I think she's implying in in his sleep, but not in, she doesn't know that she was in his dream. Oh, and of, of him sleep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. this clicks something in Chris to make him think that he's in a dream right now. He's like, oh, wait, I'm actually like, this is... Like my subconscious is cluing myself in now. I don't need the lights. I don't need the sound. I know that I'm dreaming here. And it's not the Woodbine Hotel. It's the Sourdough Inn. And It's like that scene in Inception. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one? The, the thing where Leonardo DiCaprio can't tell oh, his yeah, wife. He, he can't tell if he's dreaming or not. He needs yeah. a totem. <laughs> um, yeah, Chris, the totem should be the ant farm because he takes the ant farm and chucks it and there's like a comical sound effect of glass cracking and breaking. Might as well have put it like a cat screech or something. <laughs> <laughs> really, really quickly. Uh, I'm sorry for cutting you off, no, but really ahead, quickly I want to talk about this. I do think it's very interesting that Maggie's delivering an ant farm, which is something oh. it's like a whole world that you're controlling. Yeah. And if we read even more, <laughs> if we like really push this metaphor even further, Chris is coming here to play a game of poker, a game of chance. Yeah. There is skill involved. There you go. But it, it's, you know, you can't lie that there is some degree of uh, luck and chance involved in that game. Whereas on an ant farm, you have total control over it. And that's what Maggie's trying to deliver. Yet that's the thing that Chris destroys. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, he used his total control uh, not to help himself, but to feed his basest desires. And um, I don't think anything is really resolved here. It's just kind of comical because Chris, he does the sort of like kung fu stance or something like he, or like the tai chi or I don't know what it is, but he's like pretending like he's the master of this realm. And he says, you can't walk away from me, Maggie. Like, you're in control. Oh, but he does come clean to her 
And in a way, like he's able to reckon with his, um, his problem here. He's like, I realize now, you know, that you're here in the dream. I want to apologize to you because, uh, the hotel manager, she meant nothing to me. I just couldn't resist a dominatrix. That's still not a power good excuse. Equals lust. <laughs> um, right. Not, a, not a great excuse, but that's um, a terrible excuse of anything, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, Oh God, yeah, this is, I wrote this down cause it's kind of funny. Uh, just the performance that Chris gives, um, he suggests to her, like, you know, that's all out of my system. Like, I didn't, I wasn't really in love with her. That was meaningless. He says, now, now you're here, Maggie. We can do whatever we want. We can jump up right here on this counter and do it right now. We can jump right up here on this counter right now and... What do you say? I'm leaving now. No, I, I just think it's really... I, odd's not the word I would use. I was just about to say odd. I, why is Chris such a big horn dog? <laughs> like is what I'm trying to essentially get at. Cause his, his lucid dreaming is about sex. And then when he has what he believes to be in a reality with uh, Maggie or dream, what believes to be a dream, he also just thinks about sex with her. And yeah. And that, and that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seems like it's always on his mind on that. Hey, it's the primal desires, I guess, you know, it's the, yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, but I agree. Um, there's that's when the show gets a little icky. It's definitely a little strange with Chris here, though. Thankfully, they can play it up as comedy because it is a pretty goofy um, moment here. It's not. It's not so weird that it's not funny to laugh at how stupid Chris is in this moment when he says, "Like I'm the dream master," and she just walks away. Um, let's see. What's the next scene with Chris and? Maggie. I think it's, I think it's with Chris. It's He's like, he's, yeah. he's like wide awake, um, doing a K-Bear broadcast, drinking coffee. He says it's his 10th cup of coffee. And this is like his 36th hour of no sleep. And he says, uh, the only way I know to prevent unwanted dreams is not to sleep. And so far it's working. As soon as he says that, Chenault, the uh, hotel manager, leans in and starts to chew on his ear. So he's clearly in a dream now. And then like people, I think it's like Maggie is like frantically trying to wake him up. It's like, Chris, you got to wake up. He's been like, at first I thought he was saying all of this um, like on the air live. Like he was moaning and like <laughs> having sex with uh, Melissa Chenault on air. But when we do wake up and snap into the real world, Chris is... um. He's, I guess the mic is not on because like music is playing. He's spinning a track. Mm -hmm. So thankfully he did not embarrass himself in front of all of Sicily or the people listening, but um, it's just the record is like skipping. Yeah. I mean, clearly he's been sleep deprived. They have to haul him out of there. Yeah. He also makes it a point to say that, you know, he wants communication. He wants intimacy, which, you know, I guess to his credit, that is beating the allegations of what oh, I was yeah. trying to paint him with earlier. Yeah. He is admitting that he wants more now. And so he's learned. Yeah. yeah this is, yeah, this is a <laughs> big turnaround moment where he is seeing his better angels speak to him and coming to listen. And so they drag him out of K bear and he tells Maggie in a delirium that it didn't mean anything. He just, yeah. And it was just all a dream. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's, re he's a recovering lucid dream addict, I guess. It definitely felt like it's like a recovering addict or something <laughs> uh, coming out of that. It's just part of the his, the makeup in that scene too. He's super pale and uh, dark circles under his eyes. But 
Uh, I think it's the final scene with Chris and Maggie. It's that scene that I was kind of talking about earlier um, where Mag- it starts with Maggie tying a fishing lure and Chris is talking about a dwindling population of a certain catch of fish because of their um, methods of catch and release or something. It, it leaves a, a bad survival rate. Oh, you know what? Maybe that also ties into the the baby bear, fostering the baby bear. Is there a hopeful message that he... I I, I didn't take notes because it all sounded very technical and I couldn't parse what what he was let saying. Me, but let, hopefully me, let, me, a, let me watch the scene. Yeah, hopefully there's let a me. positive message. Is he talking about no, not November, basically? <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about the regs on cutoffs between November and September. Um, mm-hmm. So he's talking about regulations on preventing you from doing something that you would want because it's better for the overall ecosystem, the betterment of the ecosystem of the fish. He's also talking about using a baited hook and an unbaited hook, though I'm not sure I follow that. But the first thing I said is interesting. That is a very good read. I did not think about that at all. It's loose, and it kinda, but there's something there, right? Yeah. Like my read is, is a, still loose, but I think there's an idea there that we're touching on. I think the kernel of what you're poking at has a lot of substance behind it because it's then followed up with another animal, the snow geese. And yeah. Yeah. Chris says like, hey, Maurice said he saw some snow geese at the lake. And then he makes it a point to say, did you know that they were monogamous? And Maggie says, yeah, I actually did. And Chris says, I wonder what their secret is. Which again I think, uh, is bringing. I think Maggie says that? it. Maggie says it. Oh, but, Maggie says it. But yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. It brings back into that idea of nature. I love the writing of that line real fast. I do want to talk about nature, but mm-hmm. I did want to quickly butt in how she says, "Wonder what their secret is." Instead of um, whenever you know, whenever Chris says, "You know, snow geese are monogamous," and Maggie, you know, an easy line would be like, "Oh, you know, I wish I could." I wish I could have what they have, or like, I wish I could do what they did. Um, it's more playful and it's a little less on the nose, but it's obvious that mm-hmm. they're talking, you know, Maggie is, um, you know, continuing that conversation with Chris in a uh, sort of non-direct way. Wonder what their secret mm-hmm. is. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. And I wish I was like a little bit smarter at being able to uh, thread the needle right here, because I think that that is a very interesting thought to be thinking of where when you think of nature, you think of a very savage, very mm. unrestrained place that you cannot contain. And yet within these geese, there is some order to them. There's monogamy. There is an idea that yeah. they have some values that they have established within themselves and they continue to uphold them despite what you may think about animals. So I think that there is something there to be found between that statement and what Chris has been trying to overcome by trying to go into a place of control in these dreams uh, with Ed and his thing with the bear, and especially with Phil and Michelle when Phil launches into his feral his feral mannerisms. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely the sort of tying that message together in the end. I think it's pretty, pretty well done there. Oh, it's a little corny. The next oh. thing is a little corny. Go ahead. Were you going to say no, something? No, no, no. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm going to say something and then you're going to say your, your thing. I'm sorry. Okay. The survival rate that he's talking about with the fish, that probably goes in line with Maurice's plot line. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. 
Yeah, well, yeah these okay, things are kind of loosely all tying together. Yeah. Um, but the 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 cheesy thing that happens next is, uh, you know, they they pour the wine and um, Chris does like a cheering motion and he says geese. <laughs> and uh, Maggie says what? <laughs> he says nothing. <laughs> but he's like, you know, he's giving a cheers to the idea of monogamy, I guess, but in right. a very awkward way of doing so. <laughs> geese, he just says. I wonder if it would have been better if he said two geese. Two geese, yeah. That would have been a little corny as well, but it would be less awkward. Maggie is rightfully just like, wait, what is going on? <laughs> what did you just say? All right, uh, let's let's finish it out with Maurice's plot line, which I think is yeah. um, a pretty interesting one. At least just uh, looking at the setup here is very interesting. Uh, Maurice is uh, driving down the road. This is uh, right after the opening theme song of Northern Exposure. Maurice drives down the road and he comes to an abrupt stop because he sees that the Welcome to Sicily, Alaska sign has a like sort of like a hand-painted correction, crossing out the population number, which previously was 623. It's crossed out now for 607. And there's other information. The elevation is um, 6,572. Now, we've talked before about the population of Sicily, Alaska being 839. And that number has gone up and down. I think there is like a moment when, um, when, when Ed makes a little documentary in black and white and there's like a, he films like a, a newborn baby. And he says like the population has gone up to 840 or something or 839 or so, you know, the population is somewhere around that number of 839. But interestingly now, the sign, before the population changes, the sign says that the population was 623. And Charles, I don't know, uh, if you already, have you already seen what I've seen here? Like, do you, do you have any idea about the, the meaning of these numbers? No. Should I? Uh, I don't think so. But I think to me, it's very clear that 623 is a reference to the number of episodes in season six. Oh. There's 23 episodes in season six. And 607 would refer to the episode full upright position. So I'm wondering, is this some sort of commentary that the showrunners are saying the show should have ended at 607? Like at full upright position <laughs> before, you know, when, when Joel and Maggie are going to get married? The next episode is when all of that ends and then it's kind of like this, isn't it? I can't even remember, but like the beginning of the next episode, which is called Upriver, it has a very abrupt way of like, it's told in um, in past tense. So we go from full upright position where Joel is like, he proposes to Maggie. And then the next episode, um, Upriver, it's like, Joel is like, man, a lot of things have happened to me over the past week. And he explains... <laughs> That everything that they set up in the last episode was dashed away, and now Joel is going to live upriver in Mananash. Mm, okay, so that's where, like, that's when they go into the dream right there. <laughs> yeah. Everything from here, because they don't have it's a totem. It's just a dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Though, did you notice, though, that the um, the final population, the update, at the end of the episode, which we'll get to, it does increase back up from 607 to 615. Which, if we're looking at the numbers of the season, the episodes this season, it would be um, The Quest, which I think a lot of people consider the proper ending mm. for Northern Exposure. That is a very interesting theory. I like it. It's got to be, I right? did not think about it. Yeah. Uh, Those numbers, 623? 
What does it mean? Because it should be eight thirty nine, right? Or it should be somewhere it, in the it should, it should, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, like, there is... Okay, so in the next scene... So, okay, so I'm going to briefly go through and I'm going to set up yeah. what I'm about to talk okay. about right here. Yeah. So, Maurice sees all that. He's not having any of that. So, he gets his vehicle, oh, yeah. crashes into the sign, <laughs> plows it down, and he makes sure that no one's looking, and he drives off. He says, uh, like hell. Yes. But uh, Walt, <laughs> slinking in the shadows, emerges from the woods, and he sees what's up. And so he tells Ruth Ann that, hey, Maurice has run over the sign that you do. And so she confronts Maurice at the brick. And she has a line that says, you know I update the population every two years. So maybe between those two years, they somehow dropped yeah. like 200 people. Yeah, well, the number here, the drop that, that Maurice is concerned about is from 623 to 607. So they must have been at 623 for some time or that again, is true. I think I think they just put those numbers to reference. It's gotta be. That's what I that's what I'm subscribing to. But uh but yeah, I mean a lot of things could have happened. Maybe it was uh maybe it was when the showrunners left, like or when they changed showrunners in season five, it dropped from eight hundred thirty-nine to this other number. I had heard that um, there's like some sort of IMDb trivia or something that was like that number 839 was chosen because it was like it somehow reflected like the budget amount of every episode that they were given. Oh, yeah. Like I heard about that thirty-nine thousand or something, which sounded yeah. like a lot too, though. Maybe it wasn't that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Maurice is very worried that the change in population is going to reflect poorly on publicity for Sicily. Obviously, no one's going to want to move here if the population is falling, if, you know, people are closing their stores, like that deleted scene we talked about with Rusty Keys. Maurice is all about building this final frontier, and it's starting to fall apart. It's the very, you know, we kind of mentioned it in the other plot line where Phil is getting drunk, drinking next to Maurice, and he's talking about Ozymandias. It's that whole thing. Um, but let's continue down this plot line with Maurice and join him next. It's the dinner scene. Oh, he has a dinner with like a young entrepreneur, right? Yeah, we have somebody that is uh, presumably the owner of Honey Baked Hams. Right. And I, I always want to bring this up. I, I don't know how often they show this table, but uh, they sometimes dine on this green table that oh, yeah, I swear a, to me it felt. looks like a it looks like a pool table. Oh yeah, because honestly. Felt, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I see it, I'm like, is what like what are they doing? <laughs> like, whatever. They're they're having a business meeting right here because Maurice is trying to woo this person to come open a franchise here, saying they're like, hey, you know, it's gonna be good. You don't have Alaska covered and you gotta have a spot in Sicily in order to be considered done for this state. Yeah. He's like, if you want a foothold, like if you want your push pin in Alaska, or if you need a push pin in Sicily, if you want real control of Alaska, you know? Right. Uh, but then that guy counters back and says like, you know, I did my own research. I had my own people pull up their own facts and numbers and we looked into it and you guys aren't thriving like Atlanta in the seventies, which I didn't really know. I had to look that up, but it turns out that Atlanta's population peaked in 1970 at 496,973 people. Wow. So that must be what he's referencing. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I tried to look up if um, Honey Bee Ham or Honey Baked Hams, um, if there was like a young entrepreneur in the history, but I didn't go mm -hmm. too far. It'd be interesting to know if this is based on a real person, but 
I think it's fine. Um, is there a significance that he's young? Um, yeah, I don't know. Mm. I think it's an interesting uh, detail, though. Yeah. That that Maurice is trying to be like, he says stuff like, you know, when I made my first million, uh, I was 30 years old. And of course, in those days, a million was worth a million. So it's just cool. Like he's trying to have this mentor-like figure to a younger person, but he's being bested by the smarts. You know, it's like the truth is, you know, I had my people that the, the young entrepreneur says that he had his people analyze the area and figured out that it was too much of a risk. So yeah, it's not going to happen. Well, I think that it's important that it's a young person because if it was an old person, then he would just be planting seeds and he wouldn't, you know, he probably wouldn't see the uh, results from it. But this young person presumably would see the outcome. He would live to see what would happen. So for him to say no, it's basically saying like young people say no, they're not going to be in Sicily and therefore your town will not grow. That's a more significant statement than if an older fellow said no, in my opinion. True. Yeah, I agree with that a lot. Yeah, there's there's some good reasoning for having this uh, character be a younger entrepreneur. The next scene with Maurice is, I think he's in the brick getting drunk with Phil and he recites Ozymandias, or he, he says a couple lines from Ozymandias, which is in fact a pretty short poem. I don't know if you're familiar with Ozymandias, Charles. Have you read that poem? No, I, I'm familiar with it because it's the name of that like really famous Breaking Bad episode. But uh, no, I never read right. the poem. And there's like a character or something in um, The Watchman. A Watchman, like. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's a really cool line in the beginning because it says, In the desert stand two vast and trunkless legs of stone. So the words stand and legs go together right there. That's a really cool way to describe the pillars. Yeah, there's some pretty great lines in this poem. It's short enough that I can just read it here. So um, if you'll permit me, this is uh, Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal the words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare the lone and level sands stretch far away. So yeah, just like a pretty great encapsulation of this idea of a once mighty ruler whose uh, kingdom is just uh, desolate sand now. And this is Maurice trying to think of himself as Ozymandias, you know, in Sicily being his kingdom. Mm, nice. But the next scene with Maurice is he's showing a rental space to a man, like a, a commercial space for this guy named uh, Subramanium, uh, who's going to, well, hopefully try to open up a business in Sicily. And Maurice asks him, so what is your business? And Subramanium says he buys inventories from distressed companies, bar supplies, women's foundations, discontinued electronics. I guess he buys from these companies that are selling, you know, uh, massive trying to get rid of their stock as they're closing and reselling those things, which uh, in a way is um, kind of the idea of something dying, like uh, the dwindling population of Sicily. Maybe Mm -hmm. trying to find a new life from that, you know, taking these products that 
would have uh, gone into a landfill, you know, and finding <laughs> a new life for them, which is interesting. Yeah, that's a good read. Uh, but Supermanium offers Maurice a lowball price of $400 a month, and Maurice has to turn him down. But he walks outside. Maurice is uh, walking Supermanium out of the building to say goodbye, and he sees um, waiting for Supermanium parked out in the car is a whole family of kids, a wife, and he's like, uh, how many kids have you gotten there? Are they healthy? You know, something like seven or so. So it's, it's enough population to bring it up. So he says, you know what? I'm going to cut you a deal. You got it. You know, $400 a month, it's yours, um, which is fun. You know, I doubt we'll see these characters in the next two episodes, but I think it would be cool if we saw a new family in Sicily with like a bunch yeah. of kids. That would be interesting, like a bunch of new characters. Of course, like we wouldn't be able to explore all of them, but just having like having like a crowd would be interesting, you know, something about mm -hmm. that. I think it's like, okay, so I know we're not on the last episode right now, but I do think it's really fun whenever you get a guest star on the last episode. Mm, like famously, yeah. I think uh, Jim Rash plays the Dean in Community. He was a guest star on the last episode of Friends. Oh, wow. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic to come on to a television show that is having its last episode ever. Yeah. And you're just a guest star. And like <laughs> the cast, like the core cast is like emotional they're probably going through all sorts of feelings, the rainbow spectrum. And you're just there. You just show up. And you're like, all right, I'm here to read my lines. Just here yeah. to <laughs> try to do a good job. That's awesome. Uh, and I wonder if they would have brought this family in for the last two episodes. They would be feeling like that. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, we don't have a lot of time left. You're right. But um, it would be interesting to see if they continue that continuity. Oh, I was going to say that... I like this scene. So this this store that Maurice is showing to Supermanium, I have to assume is Rusty Key's old store because it's empty now. And I like the idea. Oh, okay. I like the idea of this scene without having seen the deleted scene. Because if the deleted scene, I do think the deleted scene is good in the if it were to be included in the episode. But if it were in the episode and then we saw this scene then we would know, oh, Maurice is going to fix, you know, the problem of Rusty's uh, store. Like it's going to, it'll all be better in the end. But not having the deleted scene to come before this scene with Supermanium, it definitely gives a sort of, um, it, it gives more of a surprise to me because it's kind of like a sad, empty business. And, you know, Maurice is not willing to accept this lowball price and, you know, despite his best efforts, he's not going to be able to revitalize Sicily and increase the population so that whenever they do step outside, it is more a bit more of a surprise and a happy surprise when it's like, oh, well, you know, it's going to it's going to work out for Maurice and hopefully for Sicily, too. And that brings us to the very last scene of the episode where they're updating the population number with Ed and Maurice back at the sign. They're fixing it back up and the population is six. 15 and ed makes a small remark saying like hey do you hear that thing in the distance it kind of sounds like a bear and maurice says ah i'm gonna go get my gun and then ed's like well no, 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 never mind you're gonna kill it please don't do that it's probably my friend <laughs> and then there's like a uh sort of like shot where we see i guess they're driving away in a car and we don't mm -hmm. see them talking but it's like clearly like a um 80-yard line over the top where Ed is like, the thing about it, Maurice, 
They stay with you even after they leave home. And Maurice is like, what? And, and Ed says, children. So, yeah, I guess like putting a, <laughs> I don't know if we necessarily needed that as an ending, but it is a, you know, they're, they're trying to find a good capstone to, to put at the end there to close out the episode. Mm-hmm. It is a very pretty scenic view that we it very yeah, rarely get this type of shot. Yeah. So we see it's like a wide shot, the car's driving away, and you can see like the forest of Washington, these cute houses that are just built uh, oh, yeah. against the hillside. And it really picturesque. Yeah. So the uh, the episode ends at 6.15, which, uh, you know, could suggest uh, the number for the quest, the episode of the quest. Maurice does say, my money says we'll top 6.30 by the end of next year. What do you think? So 30 episodes in season six? I don't think so. But, uh, you know, he's hopeful for another season. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait. I got, we did kind of talk about this earlier with, you know, how this is brought to streaming. Maybe this is foreshadowing a new season or a revival or a, a reboot of Northern Exposure. Yeah. It's possible. Oh, gosh. Anything's I, possible now. Yeah, it's so... Ah, oh, gosh. I really want to know the details of that. Like, I really... There's got to be some rummaging about. It feels... It just feels too weird for them to bring it back into streaming services like this after over... Uh, I mean, yeah, over 30 years since oh, yeah. it premiered. I'm definitely not complaining. I'm definitely telling everybody I know that now is their chance to watch this show that they've heard me talk so much about or they've asked me about it. It's finally mm-hmm. available. I, I know it's just in the U.S. and I think some people outside of the U.S. are, you know, rightfully unhappy that they can't watch it yet on streaming. But I think that just means that maybe it's like windowing, like it's starting here first and hopefully in other territories it will soon become available. Fingers crossed. All right, Charles, so now's the point in our podcast where we're going to invite on a guest, as we do in season six. We've typically been inviting on fans of the show, and our guest for this episode is one Callie Rhodes. Uh, Listener, you may be familiar with Kodiak Crossing. It's a recent substack that was started, uh, basically sort of like a morning or nightly radio broadcast style, just like Chris in the Morning. Um, and it's very much evokes the same feeling. And um, taken from her own substack, Callie Rhodes is also known as Callie at Dawn, the radio host at KWAC KWAC 890 AM in beautiful Kodiak Crossing, Alaska. So without further ado, let's hear what Callie thought of this episode. Hey, Lee and Charles, it's Callie at Dawn here, your friendly voice from Kodiak Crossing. Guess what? I'm absolutely thrilled to be stepping into your world of the Northern Overexposure podcast, bringing a slice of our part in Alaska right into your show. How exciting is that? Here in Kodiak Crossing, I've woven tales and shared laughs over the airwaves, always with the aim of brightening someone's day. And now I get to do the same on your podcast. Northern Exposure, and more specifically, Chris's monologues, have always been a beacon of inspiration for me. The way the show mixes humor, heart, and a touch of the unexpected is something I've always admired and tried to embody in my own broadcasts, like the Ursa Minor episode. Sure, it might not top everyone's list, but it had its moments, especially these adorable scenes where Ed is caring for that bear cub clad in his fur coat and hat, struggling to be a mother bear, or Maurice discovering that the population of his beloved town has declined and the way that he corrects the numbers at the end of the episode. That was classic Northern exposure for me, It's moments like these that capture the essence of what I love about storytelling, the blend of whimsy and warmth. As the great storyteller Mark Twain once said, 
The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Here's to discovering our why in every tale we tell and every adventure we embark upon. Thanks again for welcoming me into your podcast. Here's to an episode that's as lively and heartwarming as a Kodiak Crossing sunrise. Before I go, feel free to invite your listeners to tune in to my daily stories in our little town of Kodiak Crossing. I'm sure there will be a link somewhere in your show notes. Warm regards and a very big hug for you all. This is Callie at Dawn from KWAC. 890 on your AM dial in beautiful Kodiak Crossing, Alaska. So that was Callie's thoughts on the episode. Thanks again, Callie, for coming on as a guest. I'm so excited that we had Callie at Dawn on the Northern Overexposure podcast. And Charles, I guess I can reveal now that uh, Callie is a fictional character created by Christoph. After finding out about this Substack and just getting these emails every night, you know, they come they come like once a day, reading these and really enjoying it, I really wanted to get to know like who was behind this creative output because so much of it is like steeped in a love for northern exposure and as I said that cozy feeling of uh sort of Chris in the morning broadcasts. So we reached out, we were just commenting on the Substack as anyone can do. Again, if you if you'd like to check these posts out, you can go to kodiakcrossing.substack.com and it's free to subscribe. Um, it just sends you an email once a day. And um yeah, you can comment on the posts which we did and uh found Christoph and talked with him over email about love for Northern Exposure. And um, he agreed to record a short blurb for our podcast. And I was so thrilled to find that it was Callie who was the voice of these thoughts. And it's, I think it's just kind of interesting to have this character. Our podcast uh, has not only like reached friends of the show, you know, introducing the show to new people who have never seen it and talking with fans of the show who love the show and now reaching out into more like fictional creative universes. I think that's so interesting. (laughs) So to get into Callie's thoughts on this episode, uh, right off the bat, she says, well, I'm inferring that it's not her favorite episode. She says it's not many people's favorite or not many fans' favorite episode, but it still has a lot of great um, little moments and aspects to it, like the adorable baby bear that we commented on, uh, Charles, and just the idea of the decline of the population of Sicily. Something about that spoke to me as well, Charles, just kind of feeling like, especially when we're at the end of a season, and Charles, we know the end of a series, it's kind of, I don't know if I would say dark, but just sort of like um, remorseful thoughts in a way, just kind of looking back at it all and seeing like what, like Maurice in the episode has that Ozymandias feel of like looking at his kingdom and like, you know, has it has it fallen apart? Like, was it worth it trying to build this? But mm-hmm. I really like what Callie says at the end, talking about how Maurice corrects the population number on the sign at the end. And there's a beautiful blending of whimsy and warmth is what she says at the at the end of the episode here. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to bring up the rural population decline on these small little towns because that really is like a major issue in multiple countries. Mm. Like you, you have these large capitals and cities that are dominating the population and scattered about are these small little towns that are just trying to survive, which inevitably, whenever the people of that town pass away, it's not like the children return back to that town. They all Mm -hmm. left to go to the big city. So 
they naturally are just declining. And it's just going to be like once those once those people from that generation uh, pass away, the town fades into obscurity right there, which is I, – I mean like it's super sad, but it's also like what are you going to do to stop that? Like realistically, yeah. like how do you rebuild this entire town? Even if we just think about it in the United States – hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of those little towns. Yeah. It's not like once you fix one, it fixes them all. They all are beset by their own unique circumstances of how to fix it. So yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely is something in which like, I think in 10, 20 years will be a conversation that people are going to be having down the line of being like, all right, how do we fix these towns that are filled with 500, 600 people? Like, yeah. What are we doing to save them? Yeah. And something we haven't really touched on yet is like if we transpose the idea of like a dwindling population of a small American town to a dwindling audience of Northern Exposure, the TV show, like if Sicily is representing the show and the population is representing the viewing audience, it is true that it is losing viewers. Ugh, I really, we should figure this out right now because I need to know if this is true or not, but- at some point, there was probably like a uh, a news article or an announcement saying that like Northern Exposure was not renewed for a seventh season. And I need to know when that happened because I want to know if the creators of the show knew that the show was over at the time. Um, the Wikipedia for Northern Exposure says that on May 24th, 1995, CBS announced that the show was canceled and that its final episode it was shown on July 26th. And... The air date of this show was what, July 15th or something? July 12th? July 12th. So, uh, I mean, yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, definitely at the time of filming and writing this, sh this episode of the show, they probably wouldn't have heard that announcement. Like, it was probably filmed before May 24th, certainly. I, I, I would imagine. Maybe not. I don't know how quickly they turn these out. But it's also likely that some of the higher ups like the showrunners probably knew that the show was going to end and get killed, you know, be canceled, especially because, um, we've talked about this before. It's been said that David Chase was hired to end the show, like to put an end to Northern Exposure. That's one way of looking at it, um, to, to handle the, you know, the final season or two. So maybe they, what I'm getting at is like, if they knew that the show was going to end, this is a, a bit, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a remorseful look at the end of a show as the viewing audience, uh, the number of viewers is going down and down. But I do like that it has an uplifting ending here uh, because it wouldn't be Northern Exposure without that sort of whimsy and warmth that Callie mentions here. Um, may, maybe next year we're going to top 630. What do you think? But Hey, uh, this is a really interesting conversation that, that we can save for our series retrospective at the end. Uh, I want to go ahead and thank Callie and Christophe for being our guest on this episode. We're very thankful to have you. And uh, once again, listener, you should check it out. Beautiful artwork, very short little readings on Substack. You can also listen to Callie narrating uh, each entry. It's at kodiakcrossing.substack.com. Sign up with your email address and you'll get a new report, like a new broadcast, quote unquote, uh, every day. So Charles, that wraps it up for Ursa Minor. Next episode is going to be called Let's Dance. It's the 22nd episode 
in season six, the penultimate episode. It's called Let's Dance. Oh, interestingly enough, it's also the um, lowest rated episode of Northern Exposure, I think. Let's see. How's that possible? Like the, <laughs> the lowest uh, Nielsen ratings. I, I know, but like, how is that? It's the second to last. Oh, they didn't know. Well, I think they, they knew that, that the, they knew that that 23 would be the last because it was announced in May that mm-hmm. I mean the, the viewers, viewers would know that the viewers, yeah, the viewers would know that the season finale would be um July 26th. Mm, okay, okay. That's crazy. That is the lowest rating one. Uh what do I think it's going to yeah. be about? I uh, let's say town hall dance. Let's say that folks gather try to put on a dance for the for the town of Sicily for some sort of festival and things go awry. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I don't remember this episode, but looking at the plot synopsis, I think you hit the nail on the head. So I think we're going to get like a town dance, uh, Sicily town dance or something next episode. So Charles, I will see you then. See you next week. All right. I will see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Callie and Christoph for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoveraxposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoveraxposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.